Welcome to the M3 Bear Essentials Podcast. My name is Malcolm Travers. Each Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, I host a YouTube live broadcast and invite the editors and contributors of Mail Media Mind to present a topic of their choosing. We discuss politics, social issues, especially those facing the black and LGBT communities, entertainment, mental health, sexuality, and relationships, or whatever makes the news or makes us mad. View the show recording live to ask questions or comment in the chat. Subscribe to M3 on YouTube to get a notification when we go live. You can find links to our YouTube page and other social media platforms at mailmediamind.com. Now, enjoy the show. And we are live. It is Sunday, February 26, 2017. And welcome to the M3 Sunday Hangout. I'll be your host, Malcolm Travers. LVD Mind is a grassroots organization dedicated to uplifting and unifying the Black Bear community through dialogue, insight, creativity, and knowledge. And every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, we discuss the events of the past week to give our unique perspectives on the world. If you'd like to be a part of that discussion, please visit Mail Media Mind. You'll find links to all of our social media accounts. Uh, most importantly, the one on YouTube. If you subscribe, you'll get a notification when we go live. Um, if you're listening to us on iTunes or SoundCloud, you know, make sure to visit. Leave us comments and questions in the Q&A. Uh, email us. Direct message interact form information and entertainment. Um, today I am joined by Derek Jones from New York. He's a now giant. Welcome, Derek. Hey. What's going on? And I think Mark might join us later, but um, today we're going to have a small panel. Uh, usually we have like four or five people, but Honestly, I like the smaller ones, especially when it comes to audio format. Um, you know, it's sometimes hard to distinguish between voices and a whole bunch of people don't know each other and everything. But uh, so far, it's been really good, and the feedback from SoundCloud is pretty awesome. So, yeah, SoundCloud's like a social media platform in and of itself, which is pretty cool. Um, whereas when you just list on iTunes, you have to do all the promotion and editing and get it out there but soundcloud you know it's not something i've been involved in until recently so it's pretty cool i was unaware that it had a whole social platform yeah like one of the things they offer is you can comment at specific times in a audio playback and so it creates this hierarchy so you can see exactly when a person's commenting on what portion which you know becomes an issue when we're doing the live broadcast like we'll get a question the q a but we don't know unless we can remember what we were talking about at the time, what the comment was on, you know? So that's one of the cool things I like about SoundCloud. If someone makes a comment at a certain time in the audio, audio play, it tells you when they were listening and stuff like that. So learning all these things. One of the things I also want to do um, going forward with the audio is to bring in more audio clips. So I have a bunch today. And because we have a smaller panel, we might need a little more fillers to fill in for all the back conversations that we typically have. And so one of the things I wanted to start off with was just news from today. All of these clips are from NPR. Um, one of the reasons why is there's no, um, they're all on the public record as public radio and uh, we can freely use them. Um, so I think one of the first clips I just want to play is a news update that they had 
at 2 p.m. just a little while ago. Um, I'm going to go ahead and play that. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Barbara Klein. Former CIA Director John Brennan is casting doubt on Trump administration claims that the FBI has told the White House no links have been found between the Trump campaign and Russia. The White House needs to understand that uh, the interaction with the FBI on criminal investigations is something that uh, really they need to stay steer clear of. Certainly when I was in the White House for four years and then at the CIA, any type of engagement between the White House and the FBI about an ongoing criminal investigation was verboten. Again, not just because of the impropriety of doing it, but the appearance that it would provide to folks on the outside that there might be some unwarranted interference. Brennan, who served as CIA director under President Obama, spoke on CBS's Face the Nation today. He says it's crucial that any congressional investigation of possible Trump campaign ties to Moscow is thorough and bipartisan. Most of the nation's governors are in Washington, D.C. this weekend for their annual winter session. And while the gathering's usually somewhat apolitical, this year partisan divisions are surfacing as they debate health care reform proposals. In the meantime, supporters of the Affordable Care Act have been holding rallies this weekend in cities across the country, including in Eugene, Oregon, as Rachel McDonald of member station KLCC reports. Senator Merkley told the crowd his Republican colleagues are worried because they're realizing people depend on health care through the Affordable Care Act. Are you all ready to join the fight? My brother is alive because of the ACA, and he will die without it. Ann Shannon of Portland says her brother has hepatitis C and wasn't able to get health coverage until the ACA was passed. I really want to apply a lot of pressure to the Dems to frame this fight as murder on the part of the GOP, because it is. It's real murder of real lives. Senator Merkley urged people concerned about President Trump's vow to repeal Obamacare to run for local office. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDonald in Eugene, Oregon. Hollywood hands out the Oscars at tonight's 89th Academy Awards. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports the nine movies are competing for Best Picture. With 12 nominations, La La Land is a darling among Academy members eager to celebrate old-fashioned Hollywood musicals. Also up for the top award, Lion, Hacksaw Ridge, Hell or High Water, Manchester by the Sea, Arrival, and Hidden Figures. I'm not going to entertain the impossible. Two of the top contenders were adapted from plays, Fences, and Moonlight. Who is you, Sharon? With eight nominations, Moonlight's coming-of-age story is also a heavy favorite at the Oscars. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR. So you were able to hear that okay? Okay, so they were talking about, it's three things, the debates over, oh, hey, got people. <laughs> oh, we got, uh, let's see, Mark and Xavier, welcome. We just got started. Oh, good. Hey, yeah, I was just yeah. playing uh, Real quick news update. Um, I'm going to start with you, Xavier. You're joining us from Atlanta. And I know you're in the mental health field, but I always have to ask you what your title is. Uh, my title is I'm a forensic psychoanalyst uh, here in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. And we have uh, Marco Estes, who's joining us from Tennessee, entertainment editor and writer. What's up, Mark? Hey. 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 Um, uh, I'm here. That's all I can say. Y'all can't hear my um, heater, can you? 
No, it's okay. Okay, because I'm close. I have a new toy and I'm using it and I'm trying to make sure that it's not making noise with this heater over here. So. Say what? Oh, I think you're. Nah, I explain it to you later. It's something else. I can barely hear you though. Yeah, I think uh, Derek and Mike is up. Is that better? Yeah, it's much better. Yes, yes, guys. When I bring the mic down to my face, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but I guess the stories that were uh, reviewed in this one was um, first the report about the Trump administration having ties to the FBI or looking into some of. The FBI's investigation into the ties between the Trump administration or the campaign and the uh, Moscow. Yeah, that was and the so first one. We'll keep a list because we're gonna keep a list because we're gonna do all three. I don't want us to get sidetracked. Right, right. And the second one was the protest that happened this week because uh, Congress is on recess. I thought it was last week, but it was this week. It was it's been for two weeks. Yeah, two or three weeks, hasn't it? Yeah. I think it happened in earnest this past week. Uh, Congress completely was out. I think the House was out the week before, but the Senate was still doing confirmation hearings. And yeah. now the Senate was out this week, so we saw protests. They went out for President President's Day was the first day mm-hmm. that they went vacation. Yeah, and it seems like there are protests that have happened on many, many topics, but it seems like the, the consensus has been around the Affordable Care Act. Um, that seems to be what is bringing people out. But of course, you could have discussions about immigration and you know the um, you know the travel ban, and also dealing with the ties to Russia that people might have issue with. And then the third story was about the Academy Awards, which I think everyone heard. They're talking about the nine movies that are nominated this year, which I've seen quite a few of them. I still haven't seen Arrival, and I still want to see that. Seen all of them. Yes, on DVD. I saw all of them. Over the course of the last two Saturdays. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen, what was it, Hacksaw Ridge, Hella High Water, Manchester by the Sea, or Arrival. Like, I've seen the other ones, though. And I've enjoyed the ones I've seen. I'll say it like that. Um, you know, Moonlight is my favorite by far. Um, okay, like, which, ones, which ones have you seen? Say that again. Um, I've seen Hidden Figures, Fences, um, La La Land, um, Moonlight, and I think there's one more, but I think that's the ones I've seen. Those five. Okay. okay. Uh, like I said, amongst those, uh, Moonlight is my favorite. Hidden Figures is a close second, though. I actually, it was one of those that was a was a fan favorite. Like several times during that movie, people like stood up and applaud, applauded. You know what I mean? Like there was a standing ovation. <laughs> At the end of that movie, um, yeah. So I mean, there's there was a lot of good movies this year. So I, can say. Yeah. I felt like okay. So yeah. all real fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um. And I and I was with. I went to this thing called the AMC Best Picture Showcase. Hmm. They have it over the course of two Saturdays. You buy your ticket ahead of time. And I got my placard around her somewhere. Um, 
So last Saturday, they showed four movies. They started at 10 o'clock in the morning. I think we were out of there by 9 p.m. Um, they showed Manchester by the Sea, Fences, uh, Hell or High Water, and La La Land. Yesterday, we went back and they showed the other five. Um, they weren't even all good movies, in my opinion. And I will say, and this is the first time I've ever really paid attention to the whole best picture thing and seen all of the movies. I, I don't understand who do this every year. Understand what the common thread is of what makes a best picture a best picture. Yeah, that is a good point. Because it just seems to be kind of all over the place. Having said that, I will say that my top vote for best picture of the year is a two-way tie in Hidden Figures and Lion. Okay. Yeah, that's another one I haven't seen is Lion. But, um, yeah. Lion is amazing. Lion is amazing. Nicole Kidman is up for best supporting, I believe. Don't don't judge me because I don't follow it that close. But I know she's up for an award for it, and she should get it. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I absolutely loved about it was a, one of the things I walked into that movie with that I was concerned with was that whole white savior you got from the blind side. Yeah, it's that trope. Um, yeah, but it didn't have that. It didn't have that at all, and so that made the movie even that much better for me. Yeah. I'm going to have to put that on my list. Yeah. I mean, I try. one of the things they do is they have a um, Tuesday special here. And I've been trying to make it a point to go out every Tuesday for the discount um, movies so I can go see something. Of course, we don't have the best selection here. So I don't think, um, also, Hidden Figures, I think, was the only one that was still out. Yeah. Well, the yeah. good thing is that most of these movies are going to be available yeah. really soon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so I'll, I'll definitely put that on my list. And, uh, um, I, I don't know. Are you going to be watching the awards tonight? Um, Jared, I'm not calling you. I'm talking about you. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Jared throws a... Oscar party every year for the past several years. So I have some recordings to do today and then I'm going to run to the party. Okay. That's cool. Um, I I think I will this year now that I have live television. I'll probably, you know, take a peek. And uh, that is, like I said, um, you know, I was wild about most of the movies I saw. Um, Like I said, I had my like little moments with uh, with Moonlight. I was, it made me, like I said, there were moments when I was watching it in the theater that I felt other people getting uncomfortable <laughs> that made me <laughs> really enjoy the movie. Like I said, we probably spoiled the shit out of people, but you know, the scene at the You know where, what? I, I, I've heard you talk about this movie repeatedly, and yesterday yeah. was my first time seeing it. Yeah. No, actually, um, 
you know, I've, with everything I've seen on TV and everything, it wasn't spoiled for me. I was hoping not. It wasn't spoiled for me, and it was a really, it was a really, really, really good movie. I think it definitely deserves to be nominated. Um, I'm just not sure. Again, if I had to vote, if I had to pick, it wouldn't be the one I would pick. Yeah. Now, for me, it was like one of those movies that I feel like in film school, people are going to be studying for years later. I think it's just like one of those technically well-put-together, well-written, well-acted, like just solid piece of filmmaking. Um, and obviously, the story spoke to me personally, but I feel like it also had a, a universal feel to it. One of the reasons I really liked it was the use of silence, the use of space. You know, like, basically, there are several jumps in the storyline where things are not explained. The emptiness is part of the story, and I just love that. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to have to talk to you offline because I want to know what you felt. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that's a good point because I don't want to spoil it. Yes, off, yeah. Yeah, because if I had to explain it, it would the shit out. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was good. And um, so the use, yeah, that was one of my reasons for picking. Obviously, um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed all the ones. But, now I will yeah. tell you what I will tell you what was nominated that I understand why it was nominated, but it should not. Mm -hmm. Is La La Land? Yeah, see, I, I completely disagree with you on that. I. Yeah, I cried at the end of that movie. I did. So that movie, me, that movie, that movie is horrible, Malcolm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, the movie is horrible. It's horrible as a movie. It's horrible as a musical. Yeah, and the leads can neither sing nor dance. I agree with you on that. Oh, please explain to me what makes this a good movie. Well, the funny thing is that the true criticism about them not being able to sing or dance is absolutely true. Um, I found it actually somewhat endearing. <laughs> actually, I did. Like, that they were even attempting, because they clearly are not dancers. That was the worst part, the dancing was awful. <laughs> and they clearly can't sing. It's part of this, you know, it's uh, sort of a meta moment where you're like, yeah, they can't do this, but they do it. I love the story. Um, I did like the whole moment toward the end where she's given the audition and he does the whole possibilities thing got to me. Like it got to me. Like I was trying not to. You know, I mean, it's it cute, but, but it's a wonderful life. Did it? And better, which is hard for me to say, cause I hate that movie too. Um, <laughs> The, yeah. the, the whole possibility what could have been, you know, and I will say this much. I actually enjoyed that touch, the little three minute, what could have been. Unfortunately for me, that could have been the whole entire movie, and I'd have been okay with that. Well, that's the thing. I felt like it was sort of, it was always like, throughout the movie, there were choices that were made that could have been different, you know. That, you know, certain things happened that, you know, I think, how do I say it? That a good ending isn't always what you wanted, I guess. That was sort of the thing I enjoyed. Okay. And I enjoyed it. Yeah. 
Exactly. I'm gonna right. I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give the review that I have been giving. Have you ever given yourself a really good hand job? I mean, to the point where you've wanted to applaud yourself when it was over, when you was laying there in your own self. <laughs> and you was like, Wow, that was a really good hand job. What Hollywood did with this movie. They're giving themselves an award for a really good hand job. Yeah. And no, it doesn't. Unfortunately, it doesn't bring pleasure to most of the rest of us. I don't know about that. I think that's it. Doesn't it? Doesn't deserve to be the best in the best I, picture. I'm sorry, just it doesn't. I, I think it's gonna win, unfortunately. But um, so it sounds like you don't like it because it, to you it's not your kind of movie, Derek. But no, I love it. But I mean, as far as the fact. Well, I love I love musicals. Okay. And I love those old I understand what they were trying to do. They give you a singing in the rain. Um, you know, they were trying to bring that old 40s, 50s, 60s musical feel to it. So so I'm here for it. It was just done. Yeah, I just I, I completely disagree. But the only other thing is though, I don't know those musicals as well. So that could be part of it, which is like that you know what? And then in that in that case, I understand. Yeah. Comparison, my suggestion yeah. my my suggestion would be to go watch a couple of older established musicals. Yeah. Um and because I don't mean like the stage musicals necessarily, though you know, movie musicals. Yeah. Um, go watch those and then watch La La Land again, and you will recognize in La La Land, but you will see what I'm talking about. No, I can totally feel what you're saying on that too. Like they're borrowed and not done well, and I can, without having seen the previous ones, I, I can see the the scenes here. And I can see the like you're saying, like the, the sort of self-congratulatory nature of the movie. It's all about LA and acting and following your dreams and you know becoming a star. So obviously, people who are doing that are gonna be, feel some affinity for it. Obviously, everyone who's voting for it has been for that. <laughs> so uh yeah, <laughs> it's gonna probably win because of that. Um but yeah, like I said. That was gonna win. I want Moonlight to win. I do. Um, that's personalized. one of the reasons I actually had a conversation about it that came up in the story was about the difference between Fences and um, and Moonlight, which were both adapted from plays. And while I love Fences, don't get me wrong, I really did. It still felt like a play, and Moonlight didn't. And I haven't seen Moonlight as a stage production. I've seen Fences. It's which is amazing as a stage production, and the adaptation is great. Um, but I don't know. Like, I, I, there is a legitimate criticism to say about Fences that it could have been more cinematic than than it was. You know, and it was a great, great movie though. Um, but that that's a legit criticism of Fences that it's hard to refute when you have another best picture that's adapted from a, a stage play. And, it doesn't feel that way. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'll be watching tonight, and I hope to get uh, everyone's opinions on the uh, entertainment hangout as well when you review it, Mark. You know the aftermath, and 
you know, what people say about it. Um, let's see if there was anything else on there that we, we've probably talked about the ACA and um, the protests. I've been trying to encourage people um, to do it in my personal life. Like uh, if you happen to have a town hall, you know, go up. I actually did have a friend who did that. And, you know, the best thing to say to people if you're going to a town hall um, is to be informed, ask pointed questions, um, know our stuff, like ask very specific questions about policy. Like, because uh, I've been pretty discouraged. I remember we had a discussion a few weeks back about some Republican, um, you know, replacement ideas. And the one that I picked out was the risk pools that I really liked. They're not talking about risk pools anymore. They're talking about these health savings accounts, and that shit looks like bullshit. <laughs> like so much bullshit. Um, and that seems to be what the Republicans are going to coalesce around. Because, um, yeah, the risk pools thing is a, another, I don't know. Um, it's probably something a Democrat would do, you know, if we had to compromise. It's clearly not our first choice. Because uh, the risk pools have been done in states before. And when I heard about the way that it was implemented in these states, it wasn't putting people on Medicare from risk pools. It was putting them on a different private insurance plan, which, you know, is just bullshit. So that's probably what their version of risk pools nationwide would be. Uh, and I'm saying the one that would work for me if they decide to do it is to take those who have such extraordinary costs out of the public um, or out of the private insurance market so that other people could have, you know, relatively affordable health care. And, you know, obviously keep in a lot of the regulations from the ACA because there were so many. <laughs> like, that's the other thing that Republicans seem to, to chafe at, you know, having so many regulations. But when you go through it, it, they're all things that people had agreed were needed, you know? So many things. I, I can't even begin to name them, but I mean, it affected so many things. So, I don't know. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, if, if any, on the protest or about the ACA in general? Oh, um... I so I was looking at something yesterday and I'm actually literally sitting here trying to remember what it was I was watching, but they were talking about the healthcare system. They talked about it being um, a crazy complex system and it, and it is. Healthcare embodies so many things and so many moving, working parts. Oh, I never was, I was at a training. And it's one of the most complex systems in the world, something that some of the most intelligent business uh, analysts and, and academics have decided not to touch because it is such a complicated system. There's so many moving parts, so many people. There, there are so many things to consider and so many factors. And so they, a lot of people have just decided to just not touch it. And so what we've gotten is a system that in and in itself is, is an act of dysfunction. Okay? Yeah. Healthcare and the paying for healthcare is an act of dysfunction. And anything that you put in place to try to deal with that is probably going to be somewhat dysfunctional. 
because you have to think about indigent care versus those who can pay versus those who can pay privately versus those who are on publicly supported pay plans. And the list just goes on and on and on and on and on. And the problem, one of the many problems that you run into is there is who can pay, what they can pay, how they can pay it. Then there's the people who have to accept these forms of payment and then the requirements that are on both sides for that to happen. Um, And so I think with them protesting, I think with everything that's going on, I I think the most disastrous thing that that can really happen is for them to try to uproot and just completely remove the system of healthcare that we currently have. I get that it's got problems. I'm not ignoring that it does not, that it has problems. I get that. The Affordable Care Act has issues. There are concerns. I'm not oblivious to that. But I think if you behind it, you think about, you know, yes, it got top heavy. Yes, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. All the people are on this program. We're trying to figure out how to pay for it. But that's kind of what you should have expected to happen anyways, because now people who for the past 10, 15, 20 years who wasn't getting health care is now um, available to get health care. And so what's happening is they're seeing doctors are getting appointments and they're finding that they have things wrong that are going to be needing more care. So that increases their level of care. And then you still got this influx of people who are getting on this system and then they're having to need more care. And that cycle is going to happen. And it's got to cycle its way through. It's like with anything. When you put a new thing like this in place, it's going to take some time. It's going to take years for this to really cycle its way through. And I just think we haven't given it enough time to see what's going to end up being the outcome of this. And so, therefore, our efforts to try to change it are failing because we don't know. We don't know the end game of what we have and we don't know enough to make the change that we need to make in order to make this a better system. Yeah, I think, yeah, one of the major things is. It's already a difficult problem on its own, but then you have to add politics on top of that. And in in the political realm, we can't even agree on facts like basic, like how many people are uninsured, you know, how many people, how what's the right income level to help people at? Because there's just philosophical differences that that change the way people view facts, you know. So, you know, yeah, I would love for a, a lot, a huge independent. You know, group of people to come up with, you know, the best plan available. But then, you know, the political sides aren't going to agree, just out of principle. You know, which just makes it even infinitely more difficult. Right, and then you got to think about lobbyists for different uh, special interests and groups. You know, the insurance companies have lobbyists, just like the doctors and their associations, and the nurses and their associations, and the this and then that and their associations, and the hospitals. All of them have lobbyists, and then that plays into it. Um, unfortunately, this is a business that is massive. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. There's probably an infinite amount of size to what healthcare is, um, and how all that works. Because then once you get done dealing with the healthcare and the insurance, then you got to bring in another fighter and that's the pharmaceutical companies, which are their own separate thing. Yeah. So it's a system that it's ever expanding. It's getting bigger. There's more to it every, every day from medical research standpoint, from, you know, trying to figure out how to pay for it all. And you have options. And so, yeah, when you start talking about how, at what point does somebody step in and pay for it at certain income levels, but, you know, 
Antibiotics cost the same no matter who you are, but this surgery may cost more than that surgery. You need this surgery. You're at this level. So you may have had enough money to pay for things beneath this, but now you've gotten to the point where this is way beyond even your ability to financially manage. And so you had to work all those types of things out. Yeah. Yeah. I know like the, the, the simple solution is universal healthcare, you know, just like most industrialized nations, but do you feel like we could move to that sort of system anytime soon? Because we're a capitalistic uh, society and we don't want to just say what it is, the truth of the matter is. And that is, um, Nobody can make money if we do it that way. We'll make money, but we won't make the money we're making now. I don't think we'll be able to move that way. We just won't do it as a nation because we're capitalistic, because we as pharmaceutical company CEOs, we as these surgeons or these doctors, we as this hospital, we have an idea of what we want our bottom line to look like. And a universal health care is going to take that from us. Yeah. I, I unfortunately agree with you on that. I do. It's a sad state of affairs because it's kind of like the best solution is the one that we can't really politically in this country, or you know, I mean, politically, not just from the government side, but as a people, we will not sign on to it because of what you're saying. Too many deep pockets, and, mm-hmm. and those people have political influence, including their vote, but their money is going to influence outcome yeah so you know it's unfortunate but we make more drugs now to keep you alive than to actually cure whatever it is you have because it's more cost effective to keep you alive and just keep you living with it than it is to cure it yeah yeah there's that too yeah the the incentives you know because the funny thing is when we talk about these protests that happened across the country it happened when the affordable care act was um proposed and the Tea Party organized these protests against Republicans who were possibly signing on to it. And they had the death panels <laughs> that they ca- talked about. But there is a certain form of a death panel when you talk about end-of-life care, which does are necessary because of the financial uh, incentives for letting patients die. Like That's the real problem, not the problem that we're scheduling people to die, which is that the, you know, like if you have to pay these costs to keep people alive, you're incentivized to let them die. I mean, like it's just, you know, it's, it's a fucked up system when, when there's profit. Right. You know, it's just not cost effective. Some people, you know, you have, especially if it's their choice, you know, they have a degenerative disease that is going to kill them and they're slowly dying. And instead, you keep injecting them with this drug that's only prolonging this death, maybe a few extra weeks or maybe in a few extra months. You know, what is the cost effectiveness of that? You know, who's paying for that and how? You've spent all this money trying to keep this person alive for another six months. And now their state of affairs is in disarray for somebody else to figure out how they're going to deal with that because there's no money left. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the whole point of the death panels was to look into how we make end-of-life decisions, I mean, and how to take the profit motive out of it, um, which is necessary in a profit-driven healthcare system. It's like, you know, it is. And, it, yeah, it gets criticized from both ends because it's just the wrong system, you know. And the death panels, I, I, I mean, I think calling them death panels is the wrong way of looking at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the wrong 
terminology because it, it does invoke the negative thought process. Right. Um, but I mean, with a lot of these things, like people who get DNRs and things like that and certain surgeries, oftentimes it's required that multiple um, medical doctors or professionals in that in that area sign off on this saying that they think this is the best, the most appropriate uh, course of action. I, I mean, that's that's not unnormal. So right. why would you not do the same thing for a person who's looking at end of life planning and wanting to, you know, manage that or for family member, you know, this person's comatose and they're in a state where they can't speak for themselves. And here it is, they have a family uh, member that speaks up as their agent. And that person is saying, you know, this is a level of care that continuously providing is just not working. So they're not going to get any better. You know, more than one person who has, you know, the appropriate level of uh, degree understanding of this has said they're not going to get any better. So why should I keep putting them through this, me through this, and everybody else involved through this when I could just say, you know, let's just pull the plug and just end this peacefully? Yeah. I think what it was is a political opportunity, and this is something that I've actually worked in myself in, in language and how people perceive certain things. So death panels clearly puts into people's fears, you know, it plays into people's fears, in particular conservatives' fears about bureaucracy, about government, about people who don't care about you or know you in any sort of personal fashion, having the power to make life and death decisions for you. I mean, that was the whole fear aspect of it. But there's, underneath it, there is a truth, like I'm getting at, it's just that, you know, a financial incentive to take care of people is going to cause conflicts of interest. You know? They are. So yeah. my, my thought process is there's a way even around that, you know. Um, first of all, all of us, no matter how old we are, or how young we are, or what health we're in, we need to have that second or third person name, second, first, second, and third person named that's going to be there to speak for us when we can't speak for ourselves. You know, I, I write a lot of advanced directives for my patients oftentimes. And, and, you know, and I think that's something that we all should have. We all should have an advanced directive. We all should have had these conversations with people, um, friends, family, whoever, and to say, Hey, look, if that, if this happens to me, don't keep me on life support. Had these people jumping up and down in my chest, breaking a rib, trying to keep me alive for five more days when I know when we both know it's not going to work. Um, Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. Yeah, with some feedback. Um, you know, that's a conversation that we all should be having, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be at this point. You know, why we can't. When my grandfather passed, there was no, I mean, when he got sick, it was no putting him on life support and all that because we already knew that was what his wishes was not to let that not to happen. So it was let him go home, let him die at home, funeral home stuff had already been taken care of. He died on a Friday. We was burying him on Saturday. You know, he died on a Wednesday. We buried him on Saturday. That's what he wanted. That's how he wanted it. It worked out for him. It worked out for everybody because it meant that in that time when things were just at its lowest point, nobody had to sit there and try to get through a plan. All we had to do was write an obituary. You know, nobody had to try to figure out paying for anything or figure out this, figure out that. Because this is not the time for that. Now it's over. You know, a failure to plan is planning to fail. And yeah, when I know that if we pull the plug on grandmama, I'm going to get this inheritance. I know that. But grandmama, 91 years old. If she come back, what kind of quality of life is she going to have? 
Or she can be in a nursing home with a tube on her the life with nothing but her eyes to do any kind of communication with. And then it's not like that's a great life. I mean, who wants to be in that kind of a life? So these are all the things that you know need yeah. to be considered. Well, I was just saying that. Well, you have to pick those people ahead of time. I've already you said have to pick that person ahead of time that's going to make that decision. When my grandmother was in that position, my uncle wanted to keep her. I mean, she wasn't on the life support issue. She was just, I mean, she was old. It was her time. And he would have kept her here to this day in that hospital bed, unable to do anything for herself just to have her here. The woman who, you know, three years before she took low sick was real active, would leave the day, would leave the house early in the morning and come home long after the sun had gone down. Yeah. And I was, she just thinking, and I was thinking like we were talking about the risk pools. Those are the people who would be in the risk pools because end of life care is the most expensive aspect of healthcare. Um and so what you want is a system that lets individuals make those decisions. Like even if it is cost inefficient, I think that's something that everyone wants to personally make for themselves, even if they're making the wrong decisions. Yeah. Um I don't know. And I don't think we have a politics where we can just get to that point. Like it's just it's bad from both sides because like I said, we were just talking about the protests and how, you know, the protests from eight years ago were basically about the arguing the opposite side of it. And I see points on both sides where people are afraid of, you know, how others are going to make decisions for their health care. Where... Now, here's my question. Yeah. Are we protesting for what to do? Are we protesting for choice? Well, I think it's just... I think we're protesting because we feel like these policies are going to hurt us. Whether we're right or wrong, you know, whether it was the one eight years ago, or, I mean, I think people are afraid for themselves and for their families. That the decisions that are gonna be made in Washington or in a corporate office somewhere are going to kill us or make us sicker. Well, if, you're, if you're talking about the ACA, then yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I just, you know, I just feel like there's this huge divide politically where we all want the same thing is to have control over our health, to make decisions for ourselves and for it to be affordable. But because of this divide, like, you can't, you can't meet. Like I said, I was trying to find something that Republicans were proposing that I could sign on to. And, you know, it seems like they're moving away from that. They're not trying to come to consensus. They're just, you know, fighting. So... Uh, it's it's like I, I don't think our politics are capable of dealing with healthcare right now because we're not we're incapable of meeting somewhere in the middle. Like we're just not we don't have that kind of politics right now. So yeah. Anyway, it's so depressing. I'm sorry. Uh, I want to um move to another clip and uh, it might give me some time to get some coffee. <laughs> but it's dealing with um. Well, I have a couple of choices if you want to. <laughs> I have one which is dealing with um, so-called religious freedom bills that are, are passing around the country. And, you know, they're usually in very conservative states. This one happens to be 
coming out of Alabama. And Jeff Sessions, our new attorney general, happens to be from Alabama. So <laughs> it's very likely that he will support some of the moves that they're making. And I think we can start there. And I'll, I'll be right back. During the Obama administration, there were hundreds of bills introduced in state legislatures that tried to limit LGBTQ rights. Most didn't go anywhere. Now, there are renewed efforts on the state level to pass so-called religious freedom bills. LGBTQ rights advocates believe that's because local lawmakers are anticipating support from the Trump administration. NPR's Laura Seidel reports. April Aaron Brush and her wife have a 10-year-old adopted daughter. But for many years in Alabama, only Aaron Brush could legally adopt her. Then the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And now she and her wife are recognized as parents under the law. They want to adopt another child. But that hasn't been so easy. We've had several agencies that refused to call us back already because we were a same-sex couple. Although we got marriage equality and we're supposed to be equal. But at this point in time, we're still having hurdles to jump over. Erin Brush says the agencies didn't tell her explicitly they were turning them down because they are a lesbian couple. But all the forms asked about a mother and a father, and at least one of the agencies has a Christian affiliation. Erin Brush has thought about investigating and perhaps taking legal action. That's why, says Eric Johnston, religious agencies want protection. Johnston is an attorney who represents several adoption agencies in Alabama with a religious affiliation. They anticipated there could be problems and wanted to, in advance, think it through and do something that would be reasonable and to the benefit of everyone concerned on both sides of the issue. Johnston helped draft a law that would make it clear that faith-based agencies can hold true to their beliefs if they don't think same-sex couples should be parents. Representative Richard Wingo of the Alabama House then worked to get the bill introduced. The bill is saying that do not discriminate against these faith-based agencies and force them to place children, foster or adoption, into homes that go against their religious beliefs. Wingo says in some states, religious adoption agencies have closed rather than be forced to put children with same-sex couples. And he says only 30 percent of the adoption agencies in Alabama have a religious affiliation. The psychiatric community has found no credible evidence that having lesbian gay parents harms children. But Wingo says... It really doesn't matter what I think. If we're a follower of Christ, then what matters is what does the Word of God say? What does God say about it? Wingo's bill didn't go very far when he first introduced it two years ago. This year, the bill is listed on the Alabama State Senate GOP agenda for the first time. Eva Kendrick is the Alabama State Manager for the Human Rights Campaign, an LGBTQ rights group. This bill has been fast-tracked through the House of Representatives with support from both Senate and House Republican leadership. With the choice of Jeff Sessions to be Attorney General, the Trump administration has picked someone who is likely to be an ally on these state bills. Back when Attorney General Sessions was a U.S. congressman, he referred to separation of church and state as something that's recent, unhistorical, and unconstitutional. Sarah Warbelow is the legal director for the HRC, and she believes the choice of Sessions as attorney general 
is sending a signal to local lawmakers. In just a short period of time, we're seeing renewed vigor in the states around passing legislation predicated on the idea that they're protecting religious liberties, but truthfully allowing widespread discrimination. In addition, Warbolo says there are similar religious freedom adoption bills in South Dakota, Oklahoma, Texas. The faster advancement of these bills has advocates for the LGBTQ community nervous about their future under the Trump administration. Laura Seidel, NPR News. Okay, so were you able to hear that all right? Yeah. Okay, so one of the things I, I think this story brought up for me was sometimes it's not so much the things that come out of the Trump administration necessarily, but just the tone, the sort of message that it sends to places across the country that now your bigotry is welcome. You know, like they were saying that this bill didn't really see much distance two years ago. Same bill, but now it's getting fast-tracked and it's happening in many other states. Um, what are your thoughts about like how to resist something like that? Because it's, it's a multi-state, it's not a national thing, and yet it's a national administration that is department. Ask the question again. No, I was just saying, how do we fight against this? You know, like, do we have to go state by state to, um, you know, when these bills pop up to aggressively campaign against them? I think, you know, like they're saying, the human rights campaign has that sort of capability. They have um, members in, you know, many different states that will probably fight against them. But it feels like all of this energy is coming from the top down. I think I think we need to look at what was how it's been handled before and how it's been shot down. For instance, when they tried to introduce it here in Georgia, look at what happened here in Georgia and then replicate that in other states and cities. Um, and that should have a similar impact on at least some. It won't have an impact on all of them, but it'll have an impact on some of them. Um, and, and but then also let that be a lesson to you when you see these things happen that when that LGBT bill changes um, and your freedoms and your rights get attacked, be aware of who did that and make sure that you you know vote those people out and, and start you know figuring this is an opportunity. I think I was telling somebody else this and I still think I'm think I'm right on this one. I think the Trump administration is going to do us a lot of good in the fact, and we're not going to realize the good it did for us to further down the road. But I think we ought to use this as an opportunity to really find out who's got our interest at heart and keep track of those people and then systematically get rid of them, each one of them, yeah. get them out of our political you system. You know, Xavier, I heard when you started that sentence, but I, there were several ways you could go with that. I'm in complete agreement. Yes. Xavier, can you um, can you like refresh my memory of what what Georgia did because I can't remember exactly. So when the religious freedom bill came to Georgia, a lot of massive companies and businesses um, who either don't have a problem with the LGBT community or support the LGBT community refused to come here. Like some movies, they had stopped production on movies here. Certain movie companies said they weren't gonna make movies here. Um, certain other vendors and businesses uh, stated they would pull out. 
if Georgia adopted this religious freedom bill. Uh, and then there were the protests and people wrote into companies and wrote in and said, you know, you ought not do business in Atlanta or not in Georgia because of X, Y, and Z. And so it hit them in their pockets. And so Nathan Deal said, you know what, you know, I, I, you know, we looked at it and it's just not the decision we want to make, even though he had started to make that decision and had publicly said some things that, you know, alluded to that, he changed his mind. And I think that's what you ought to do. Um, figure out what is these what what is the bread and butter of my state and go after that and then tell them that you know i'm an lgbt person or i have lgbt interest friend family member or other and then you go after them with those women i think what they're dealing with is utter and complete foolishness because you know they're always talking about feeding the children you know they want you to donate money to these organizations the kids need to be adopted you know there's more children in foster care than enough money to go around so for somebody to turn someone down simply because they're in a same-sex marriage or whatever to me i think that is borderline psychotic it's real silly like it's the craziest thing i could ever thought i've ever thought i've heard and they're always like, complaining about how, I'm sorry, but how they don't have any like room and stuff like that to place like right. foster kids and stuff. It's just like this that gives you options to get to have room to have you know beds for these kids and stuff like that. I mean, we have or domestic abuse parents. cases, or just or parents just in general. Parents. But I'm, yeah, I mean, you want the child to go to a loving home. You always talk about you know you a child of the system and this and that. It affects the kids and go um later in life and whatnot, and you give them the option to go to a loving family, and then, but you would rather place them in a home where somebody, all they do is collect foster kids to collect foster checks. Well, and that's why you got to with those kids, yeah. And you got to gotta ask them, so do you all have a line, a two-mile long line of heterosexual couples standing in line trying to adopt children? Exactly. I mean, because I think they can pop their babies out on their own, so I think that's the reason why they're not too interested in adopting. So, but they're trying to. But you, but you, but you understand they're trying to save these children from the um, from the devil, from these homosexual uh, couples that then are going to turn these children into homosexuals. Because you know that's fine. Turn them into homosexuals. Right. At least then we'll know they'll know how to decorate, dress, and get jobs. It's better than what the alternative is, and that is they end up in jail, they end up dead, they end up on drugs. They end up being another statistic on another end of the spectrum. So, but my, but my point, but my point was, are talking about what about the children? Save the children. It honestly is never about the children. Oh, I know. Yeah. And that's why I don't advocate. Like I say, I'm not going to write no checks to these organizations because yeah. I'm already thinking. I'm already knowing. Well, you know, ignorant. Your census is high because you keep turning down people that are adequate, adequate, viable candidates for adoption. So your census is high. You're running out of money. Think you need to fuck up, change your priorities, maybe. Then somebody will write a check for you. And I was well, going to co-sign. I was going to co-sign on like what you said, Xavier, about how you just you know right into businesses and tell them we don't. Because a lot of folks don't realize that some of these wedding planners, some of these hairdressers, some of these, you know. You know, all these people, they're gay LGBT members of you know, the community and whatnot. And just be, and I, I say this turn of this, this flip the script on them. Now, you now you don't want nobody going to come to your business because of your religious rights. 
and you go to so-and-so about having a photo shoot done and you know they're the best in town, but they know that you sat there and turned down, you know, like you you gave business to like this other place that is against LGBT, uh, LGBT members, just to tell them I refuse to serve you because you 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 pocketing money into somebody who's trying to demean my damn way of living. I just think we should flip the script. If they gonna do it like that, then we should do it too. It'd be like, well, that's my that's my religious and moral belief to not stare at people who are bigots, and see how <laughs> how quick this changed. Well, I, I I agree, Mark. I never understood because again, I know the makeup uh, or one of the makeup people on the View understood how uh, what's her name. Oh shoot! What's her name? She was on the View a few years ago. Uh, Elizabeth has a bit. No, not her. Um, the oh. black one. Oh, Star Jones. Sherry Shepard. Oh, Sherry Shepard. Okay, okay, okay. I, I never I understood like... how Sherry Shepard didn't go out on stage every day looking like a fucking clown, looking like Bianca Del Rio. <laughs> yeah. You know, because because Sherry Shepard is uh, um the J Dub. Yeah, and she is, you know, many times. Oh no, I don't believe in homosexuality. This, that, the other, the third. Okay, girl. Uh-huh, all right, let me do your makeup. <laughs> he would look like Bozo the fucking clown every day. Yeah, every yeah, I day. Well, I did want to before Mark spoke. I, I think he spoke basically on what I was going to ask, which is, you know, I really do um, agree with you, Xavier, about the financial incentives. And it's coming back to me about how South Carolina is currently going through a similar thing with the trans bathroom bill. And I, I remember a, a friend of mine was telling me about how he and his wife are on the opposite sides of the political spectrum, right? And she was she's liberal and he's conservative. You know, I do have some a lot of conservative friends that live in South Carolina. Anyway, he's like, I could never talk to my wife about politics in this this um political season because it just made her so upset. And so she has made this day talk where they'll just talk about sports, you know. <laughs> and then they try to, you know, have breakfast without fighting, but then you turn on sports channel and they're talking about how the NCAA is not gonna, you know, hold its final whatever in South Carolina because of the, the bathroom bill. And it's effective. It's a, an effective messaging because it even when you're trying to turn away from politics it comes into your everyday life. You know, people are trying to ignore the sort of, uh, um, you know, the, the, the conservative agenda. They're trying to run away from it, can't escape it because people in all areas of life are affected by it. And the second thing I wanted to say was um, dealing with messaging and communication and the words we use. Um, one of those which has become very popular in the conservative circles is religious freedom. You know, so all these bills have that thing in common. They're called the, you know, make religious freedom bill. And then you have to ask, what does that language say? What does it communicate? What do people hear when they, they hear religious freedom? And they hear, this is my um, hypothesis, is that they hear people are being oppressed by the government, which is Something conservatives really dig, you know, it's like, oh, these poor religious institutions, they're having to go out of business because, you know, now they're having to do things against their religious beliefs and they're being forced to do something that they find immoral 
how do you how do you combat that? Is what I'm saying as a liberal because that's what I'm hearing. This is what the, what they call the whisper dog whistle thing that's coming through in that messaging, which is to say, let's support the bigot. Well, first of all, I mean, facts don't change anybody's minds or opinions. So it's a waste of time to say that that there has never been no time recent in the past 20 or 30 years has a religious organization went out of business because of their religious beliefs. Now, anything that fails to change or grow is slated to die. That just is what it is. and there's no getting around it. Yeah, titling something like the religious freedom bill, that was just more, more and more propaganda, just like calling um, a death panel a death panel is propaganda. It's to elicit an emotional response and to get what you want out of it. So the religious freedom bill, if they truly named it what they should have named it, it should have been named uh, legalized bigotry or legalized discrimination. That's what they really should have named it, the discrimination bill. No, I love it. I think that's what. In order to fight the propaganda, we need an equally, you know, emotionally salient, accurate description. I love it too. What you said, exactly. And that's what we should start. So, like from right now, take that, and when anybody writes up from an LGBT community, LGBT blogs, websites, use that. Just like they used Obamacare to sit there and um rename the Affordable Health Care Bill. Yeah. Rename it, just call it a discrimination bill, and it will take its life of its own. People really our language I really do. And that's just what I'm saying. Like I feel like we need to get better at rebranding what they're doing. You know, so people get in there. So the legalized bigotry bill. That's what you're talking about? Well, we need to be better at rebranding. We need to be better at just we need to be better at coming not coming to a gunfight with a knife. Yeah. Right. And we can do it. Oh, my God. We can do it. We just don't realize that we can do it. I think that is the no, I think I, I think this goes back to what you said earlier, Xavier, and I agree with you for all of the horribleness that is happening with a Donald Trump presidency. I agree with you that some good things are going to come out of this. People are people recognize that their dollar means something. That's saying, I'm not going to support your business. Can get the business to change its way. That, you know, you got, you got, you got senators ducking, diving, hiding under bushes and shit because I'm looking for them. Look, I voted you in. You work for me. I want to talk to you. Yeah. And that's how it should be. I, yeah. So I, I agree with you. I think that on, on in, in that situation, I think you're absolutely right. I think this has really taught people a lot about what politics means and what it's supposed to be. Yeah, and I think it's also in the the private realm as well, because um, we were. I think we're going to play a story about Trump's, um, you know, relationship to the media. So this might be a good transition to that. But basically, people have been screenshotting screens of Breitbart news with horribly racist headlines with the ads from these different companies and they email them and say, I can't support your company because I found your ad on their website. Oh, that's smart. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and thousands of companies have divested because basically the way they get buy advertising are through these aggregators. You just go to Google and say, I'm going to buy a thousand dollars worth of ads 
just put them on whatever website uses AdSense. You know, they're they're advertising things, and so yeah, it actually hurts Breitbart if you do that, and it works. Like thousands of little companies are just saying, okay, I'm I'm gonna still sign up for Google service, but I'm going to select that you do not put my ads on this site, and that site loses money because of that. It gets people's attention. Yes. <laughs> Really right, exactly. Companies that really, okay, when have you ever seen Saks Fifth Avenue, um, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, when have you ever seen them say anything negative against the LGBT community? Sure. Never. And they're not going to. They're going to make sure they don't. They're going to intentionally put ads out there saying, come on in, gays, we got a spot for you. They're going to do these things because they got common damn sense. They know yeah. And, and, that's and this is the thing, though. Yes. That's the thing. I think some of these companies are so large and some of the people are inexperienced, so they end up on these aggregating sites. And so when they end up and they see their ads on something like my part, they're just as horrified as the person who saw it. They didn't know. But sometimes it's not even like, you know, average or whatever I'm saying, malice. It's just incompetence sometimes, you know? Like they don't know that their their ads are on those sites, so let them know. And I, you know, I, I just wholeheartedly endorse what you're saying about hitting people's bottom line. Like if you see some shit like that, let them know. They might not yeah. know. Um, the Walking Dead had a situation like that where one of their shirts was ended up in this company, and um, it was about the it was about uh, uh, the bat, um, whatever that name, Lucille, the bat, Lucille. From the Walking Dead and and Negan's bat and you know it had in there uh, the whole song about any many might and mo and the whole fact that it used to be a song when they were talking about lynching somebody yeah. and it was catch a Negro. Uh, this shirt ended up somewhere and the the producers of Walking Dead and all these people immediately got word of that and they put out press releases and they did the whole thing they snatched those shirts. And they yeah. really let people know real fast. This is not what this was about. We're sorry. We didn't. We weren't paying attention. And you, they let it. They they got it fixed. They took care of it immediately. I don't even think they had time to sell any of the shirts before they got them off. Yeah, yeah, and that that's something that I think a lot of companies are learning is financially advantageous to do to have a, a person or people who will react to customers' responses quickly and, you know, authoritatively. Instead of, because some people just don't do it as well. And, yeah, I, I haven't heard about this story, but it's a perfect example of how that works. And yeah, so I did want to do one other news clip. I hope I'm not doing too many, but um, this was having to do with the Trump administration's um, kicking out of major media organizations, like Gaggle and some of the other things that were going on as far as um, their relationship to the media. Go ahead and play that. The relationship between the Trump administration and the news media has taken another step backwards. Earlier today, President Trump tweeted that he will not be attending this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner, which may not be surprising given President Trump's blistering attack on the news media yesterday during his speech to the annual gathering of the Conservative Political Action Committee. A few hours later, the White House barred some news outlets from attending an off-camera question-and-answer session held by spokesman Sean Spicer. 
CNN, the New York Times, Politico, and the Los Angeles Times were all prevented from attending the briefing, whereas outlets seen as more friendly to the administration were allowed inside, like Breitbart, which Trump's close advisor Steve Bannon formerly ran, the Washington Times, and the One America News Network. We wanted to find out more about this, so we called NPR's media correspondent, David Folkenflik. He's with us now. David, what happened here? What happened is Sean Spicer, whatever you think about him, does hold a lot of briefings. In this case, it was called a gaggle, and that is off camera. So he invites in what are called pool reporters. They sort of represent uh, the radio press, uh, the print press, uh, TV, the like. And then he invited in the small coterie, as you say, of conservative outlets. Notably absent were CNN, The New York Times, and a number of other major news outlets. Some of those outlets had done coverage in recent days that upset the White House, and particularly the president, who made those remarks uh, yesterday morning. Uh, Sean Spicer was asked uh, what the president had in mind, and here's what he had to say. This banner on CNN right now, this is CNN and others have been blocked from media briefings. Are, are CNN and The New York Times not in here right now because you're unhappy with their reporting? And why, why are they not in here? Because we had a pool, and then we expanded it. We added some folks to come cover it. But there's not room for other that. It was my decision to decide to, to, to expand the pool. Sean, yeah. the president said that at CPAC, we're going to do something about it in reference to these stories that he is saying are false by the New York Times and CNN and others. What is he talking about there? So said he, he said we are going to do something about it. When well, he I mean, I think we're going to aggressively push back. We're just not going to sit back and let, you know, false narratives, false stories, inaccurate facts get out there. Now, Spicer said that wasn't the reason that CNN and The New York Times were shut out of that gaggle, but it sure looks as though this is a new form of uh, pushback that Spicer's describing. Now, New York Times executive editor Dean Piquet said that nothing like this had ever happened at the White House in the Times' long history of, quote, covering multiple administrations of different parties, unquote. Other organizations struck a similar note. What does your reporting say about this? Well, certainly nothing in this specific manner has occurred before that I can find. I think reporters are taken greatly aback. I mean, you can always have Spicer not be particularly responsive to a given news organization, but not let them be present if they're inviting in a significant group of others beyond the pool. Just hasn't happened. So now some conservatives are pushing back on uh, people saying how unprecedented this is, saying that the Obama White House tried to exclude Fox from the press pool and from some significant interviews back in 2009. What's your reporting say about that? Well, I think it's absolutely true that uh, on a number of occasions, White House officials made the argument that Fox News and its reporting and its commentary had uh, been unfair at times, circulating groundless uh, claims about President Obama personally, as well as his policies that were beyond the pale. But I got to tell you, at that time, and I remember these instances well, other Washington reporters and other Washington bureau chiefs stood up for Fox News and said, you know, you're not going to shut out our competitors uh, merely because you don't like the way in which they cover you. Now, people critical of this have said, have framed it as an attack on the free press and an attempt to limit the American people's access to information from the White House. Do you see it that way? I think it's a multi-layer reaction. Uh, Part of it is, I think, that it reflects the inclination and gut instincts of the president himself, who seeks adulation uh, from the press and attention. And when he doesn't get it in the way he wants, he gets very angry. I think that there is a stoking of that and an encouragement of that in a certain wing of the White House, let's say the Steve Bannon wing, that sees that as offering red meat to part of the base that got President Trump elected. And I do think it's also reflective of what at least seems to be a a lack of interest or an antipathy in the White House towards the free flow of information. There seems to be much more controlling uh, desire by the administration than we would perhaps uh, want to encourage. That's NPR media correspondent David Volkenflik. David, thank you. You bet. There was was quite a bit in that, and I want to break it down, but I think they started talking about the um, White House Correspondence Center. 
which I, I found entertaining because, you know, they always have a headliner. And, then, you know, the president is usually in attendance. Um, one of the things they noted in another story was that the president has been in attendance. I think the only only time the president has not come to the White House Sports Conference Center was Ronald Reagan, and that was because he had just been shot. Like, yeah. You know, so, I mean, so he could be years. forgiven. Yeah, he could be forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was. Yeah, he was in the hospital. That kind of proceeds a dinner. So um, yeah, it's crazy. Like that's. Not- but we gonna send him a plate and some well wishes. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really unusual for the president not to show up. And then some of the comments that he made at CPAC were pretty damn ominous, just saying like, "We're not gonna take this lying down." About you know the stories from the New York Times. He was still were, campaigning. I know, but this is the thing. The two stories they were referencing, I just wanted to mention. New York Times is the one that broke the story about the contacts between um, the Trump administration during the campaign and Russia. And CNN was the one that reported about the uh, meddling in the FBI investigation uh, about those contacts. You know, So, yeah, they're talking about serious, hard-hitting news that is well-documented, well-forced, you know, no one is refuting the facts of them. They just don't like the story. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And they've bumped them out of some of these these press gaggles is what they call them, you know, the press pool. It's really fucking ominous. <laughs> you know? And um, so that's all I had to say about some of the background that we were talking about. CPAC, the stories from CNN and New York Times, um, and there's also another story involved with this that I think Derek and I talked a little bit about beforehand, about how some of the people within his own uh, administration manage the president through the news. So, yeah, I might just go ahead and bring that up to be part of this discussion. So, it was reported. I didn't have an audio clip to talk about, but it was reported. Wait, you I believe- because you played a seven-minute segment, and we talked about it for a minute and a half. Okay, no, no, we're not done with it. I'm folding it in. Yeah, yeah, I'm just checking. Yeah, yeah. I'm folding this into a larger discussion about the Trump administration's relationship to the press. So, this is another wrinkle in the story, which has to do with uh, some of his advisors planning stories in Breitbart, um, Washington Times, and One America News or whatever. I think those are the three that were brought in. Um, they planted stories in those particular news organizations to increase Trump's mood because it was it was a well-documented leak story, basically, about the fact that his advisors have to manage his media intake like a child. Basically, like I said, we talked about it earlier, they limit his television time because it makes him cranky. <laughs> like when he watches too much news. He becomes a child, and throws themselves together. <laughs> and then they planted stories in Breitbart, Washington Times, and One America News, or whatever that is, to make him happier. You know, they planted stories in these conservative outlets, which then got picked up by Fox News, which they know he's going to watch, and they make sure that he watches these positive stories. This he's like, I know. Fucking crazy. So anyway, I'm sorry to monopolize so much time, but what is what is what did you get out of the story and some of the surrounding things about the administration and their relationship? Complete and utter bullshit. 
that has been my whole this my whole take on this shit ever since it started. Like really, I was here getting ready for work the other day. And while the C, what what a couple of them they call CPAC, what the, what, what the fuck is called? What's going yeah, on? CPAC. I was watching it as the shit was going live, and I was like, "This is this is this is crazy." And then I got to work to hear that they sat there and blocked that CNN and the New York Times from coming to any um, and then not not just them Politico, yeah. BuzzFeed, and I forget the other one. It was another one, and yeah. I was like, "Oh wow, okay, so this is what we're doing." And now you telling me that they got to sit there and monitor. Every damn thing that he does at Tug T, you know, back in the day with like Family Guy and South Park and stuff like that, would have these little cutaways with them saying like Bush with, with keys and stuff. Like that. Oh, look at the keys, Bush. Look, oh, no, that's what I, that's what I was telling was Trump. Were, he said, No, but it's true though. They, they were jokes about Bush. These are confirmed, fully fleshed out sources. facts, facts. <laughs> that this is what the president. But this is what his advisors do. And because they have this relationship with Breitbart, in particular, the senior advisor was the, the former editor of that, that publication. They have contacts in these organizations to plant stories to make them feel better. That is asinine. Like, people, wake up. This is who you put in office. This is what we have to fucking deal with. We have a petulant child with the launch codes. And it's just like, like you know, it's just oh my god! Like I, if I don't you know have shit enough about money, like, you can take a selfie with the nuclear football. <laughs> See, I mean, it just don't make no goddamn sense. And then like, and the, but 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 to answer your question about what like with them, I'm glad CNN broke down who got cut, who who got access, and who didn't. Everybody who got access, you need to take with the. Uh, grain of salt not saying they're gonna pr- produce false news or fabricate stories and shit like that but you gotta be like are they gonna call him out of his shit as much as, as quick as everybody else would and then with the whole uh white house correspondence dinner i don't i wasn't expecting him to be i, I was expecting him to drop out that yeah. wasn't too much of a surprise to me but you know what did he somehow Bill Stein, the guy who was like, um, he was on CNN the other night defending Trump. Well, I won't blame him. Well, I mean, you guys have constantly been after him, just looking for something to pin on him. I'm like, dude, I should go just take my just because you're in his. Yeah. Oh my look god, at I just can't. Hillary's emails Never and no. Before. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Just, I was going to say something that was slightly on, slightly off topic. Is never before, Mark, you were talking about people wake up. People are awake. And I'll tell you why we know they're awake. For have there been this many people. <laughs> <laughs> Because this is all it is. When he talked, when he talked about leaks, all he's yes. saying is stop snitching. <laughs> exactly. You imagine being there's never been these people, people in 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 government. I'm sure. Like they sit in that room and say, "Oh my god, like this is happening." Someone needs to know about this. Did, 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 did anybody see the 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 report about Homeland Security and the travel ban? I think so. So okay, so the seventh, the seventh uh, circuit district 
you know, blocked the travel ban, said it was unconstitutional. You there, there's nothing, thing, no evidence whatsoever that proves that this ban is necessary. So, so the White House apparently went to, um, which the president puts his people in place there. So uh, that's a, that's that office is run by that office, and told them to come up with a report proving that this ban was necessary. Yeah, I they came that. back, which is not what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to work the other way around. Mm-hmm. But they came back with a report that said we have done everything in our power to do what you asked, but there are zero terrorists who have come from these seven places that you have banned, and we cannot, in good measure, this shit up. There's no reason for this particular travel ban that you have written. So the heads of security who were appointed by Donald Trump said, okay, so we're just not going to release this report then. And yeah. somebody working there said, oh, okay, and slipped one in their back pocket or in their sock or something. And then they left work and then they ran to the Associated Press and said, oh, girl, here, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> and those probably the exact words. Oh, girl. I don't. <laughs> because, 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 because that happened Friday uh-huh. afternoon. Yeah. Eight o'clock, the news was reporting about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's so clear. true that um, there, yeah, that's very accurate. <laughs> and what's funny about so the more, yeah, so the more they try to block out the press and stuff, the more leaks are gonna happen because the there are actual patriots in this com- in this country. There are yeah. actual people who here for the three ring circus that Donald Trump was brought to town. Yeah, they're here for actual country, keeping this country safe for real, for real, you know, not for play for real. Mm -hmm. And they're doing the things in their power, things that they can do. Yeah, this is this is not going to turn out well. And this is the funny thing I have to remind myself about it is that everything Derek says is true. Like this happened so many times. That's the whole thing. Like, oh, girl, you got to see this. But but you also got to remember that all these people are conservatives. Like that's what's so funny is that there's ranking Republicans who's like this shit is above the pale. Like I cannot, I can't even you know even though it's toward some goal that I personally see. Like even with you know the travel ban, um, you know they might want to have the travel ban too, but they also want their credibility. They're not going to just fucking lie about it because they're like we want our future reports to have some weight. You know, right? They might have the same goal, but they're like, we can't do this. We can't just fucking make shit up. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm still not like in a panic about it because here's my thought: one, we know for sure he won't get a second term. I think we've solidified that at this point. Also, secondly, we may not finish this first. <laughs> the first one, the first one. I think again, he's still going to be so distracted by jingling keys and flashing lights, like a typical toddler would be, that he won't be able to do anything. I just don't think he's going to get shit done, not for real. Yeah. Because he's so distractible. 
Yeah, yeah. I think the reason I might disagree with that is because of Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon is running his White yeah. House. And he's very because polite. while he's not doing anything, while he himself is not necessarily doing anything, these people are putting papers in front of him that he can sign. Yeah. He okay, and we've seen what happens when that happens. That there is still a voice of no, reason. I, mean, out I, there. I, I agree. Have you heard this rumor? Um, April Ryan asked this question a couple days ago at one of the uh, that Trump has talked about doing something for the HBCUs. What? Hmm. Yeah, he's been talking. He's been it's it's been kind of floating around out there. But again, much like many of his other plans, there's no detail involved in it. It's just you know I'm going to do something for the HBCUs. I'm going to show you know the HBCUs something that Obama has never done for them. So apparently, Brian, who is supposed to um, you know make his meetings for the Concessional for the Congressional Black Caucus, you know, when she's not busy doing her job as a reporter, <laughs> asked him about this thing that he's supposed to do where he's going to remove the HBCUs from under the Secretary of Department educational umbrella and bring them directly under the White House umbrella. Oh, wow. That's not ominous at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do want to mention one other. Yeah. Well, now that's 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 a wonderful question <laughs> because because Sean Spicy never said he's not doing that. Right. We he said we had no details about that at this time. <laughs> but I want to mention one thing. So imagine Steve Bannon being in charge of HBCU. Yeah. Oh, sweet Jesus, don't speak that it's existed. I don't even think that. Oh, my God. I want to shut the hoes down. <laughs> I also want to talk about something Steve Bannon said at CPAC. But, Mark, you were about to say something? No, I was going to just say I, I was kind of, I found it very interesting. This is a little quick thing. How Fox News sat there, like, you know, they gave the little pushback. that like, look now, we was, look, we get what you're trying to do, though. But y'all, then they called him out, like, saying, like, this is an attack on journalism as a whole. And I'm glad that they, as much as Fox News spews a lot of bullshit with that stupid ass, what's the girl named Tommy Lauren, what the what, what stupid ass, and Bill O'Reilly. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. yeah, her. And then um, for them to sit there and actually just say that, to put this statement out there, this speaks a lot for me. And a lot of conservative people got on news the other day and sat there and said, yeah, we get it that um, Barack Obama tried to block out Fox News when he was in his office, but I didn't hear about that. But the thing of the matter is, they said, if, when you let shit like that happen, it sets a precedent. Yeah. So I'm glad that they are still like, yeah, we gonna, with the end of the day, we need in, um, in, um, integrity within our journalism. And just because you don't like how they report news, that don't mean that you need to block them out of the press. Um, so I'm, I'm, I applaud them on that. And that's the only time probably I'm gonna applaud Fox News on something. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, no. The thing I was going to say about Steve Bannon was something he said at CPAC, and I'm going to um, move on to another topic. But uh, he just basically said this term that should scare the shit out of people, which is, you know, our our appointments to the cabinet were not a mistake. They were purposefully 
in, um, picked to help deconstruct the administrative state. That's where they put it. And they were specifically re uh, referring to uh, the Departments of Education, Energy, and um, what was the other one that I can't remember? Because I know Betsy DeVos and Rick Perry. Yeah. Oh, it was uh, EPA. The EPA guy was also very um, actively opposed to environmental regulations. You know, Rick Perry famously described he wanted you know, couldn't remember he wanted to dis dissolve the Department of Energy when he was running for president. And Betsy DeVos frequently talks about uh, school vouchers, which is a ploy designed to destroy public schools. So, yeah, those were not accidents. <laughs> like, he clearly just said it and, like, barely gets, like, a mention. And he is as, I would say it this way. He's the number two in the White House. I mean, I still believe President Trump gets his way, but Steve Bannon has enough influence and clout to really push policy, and he's talking about it publicly and in a very scary authoritarian way. Like it's to me, anyone who just says like my goal is to destroy these agencies, I don't know what sort of backlash or or and of course the audience there just praises and claps him for it, but. Like, come on, people. <laughs> but, you know, here's something else. And this is something we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, have not really been educated on why this is a problem. Yeah. People have not been educated on these, on, on this charter school nightmare. Yeah. Because you hear charter school and you think, well, public schools haven't been doing well. And so, you know, you'll get this charter school and, you know, they, they have a more progressive form of education and everything will be fine. And the problem is they're unregulated. Yeah. They basically get to do whatever the fuck they want. And there's no place to bring them yeah um there's a charter school in chicago that's working out of an old church building a wing of the of the building that has been cut off because there is literal raw sewage yeah. from the pipes of the building but you still have children in that building yeah get shit like Black Plague. Yeah, it's true. You know, yeah. some, some some third, fourth world shit from the 1600s we shouldn't be dealing with in 2017. Yeah. Report that too. Because you can't go to the Chicago public school system and report it. It's a charter school. Yeah. And they need to get they need to get these mothers out here who have had these charter school experiences. Get them out here, get them on the television, get them on the radio, talking about the nightmare that is these charter schools. And maybe people will understand why this is a really legitimate fight. It is, it is. I would say like the the um the discussions I've had with people about private and charter schools has to deal with school choice and changing a public system to a private one to increase competition between schools. But there's a problem with that. Public schools are not a corporation. They're not for profit. 
and they don't have a choice in who they serve. You know, like, and most of the times parents don't have a choice in where they send their kids to school. They go to the school that's in their neighborhood. And because the school, yep. most people don't go and move, even though, honestly, they did say that um, one of the biggest uh, indicators of school, I mean, of um, home prices has to do with the school district in which you buy that home. So it definitely has an influence in the pricing of houses, but still, typically you're not up and moving to go to a better school district. So the whole idea of school choice is irrelevant because most people are locked into wherever they're living. So, and then of course the, the, the tax incentives pay maybe at best 10% of the cost of going to private school, at best. So it's not even really that thing. Like if you were to pay the entire tuition, that would be a different conversation. <laughs> like that might be something I'd be interested in. Uh, I, I know when we talk about this stuff, I never mentioned that I went to private schools up until I was in high school. Yeah, I did. I, I actually had never been to a private school until I was a freshman in high school. You mean a public so, school? I mean a public school, yeah. So, which, which private school did you go to? Well, I went to Beasley in Chicago, and then I went to... Um, you know what? I knew there was something about you I didn't like. I, I, I should have <laughs> Yeah, I went to Beasley. You one of them Beasley motherfuckers. Yeah, I, I couldn't stand you, bastard. <laughs> like, half of the kids that went to my church went yeah. to Beasley. And, yeah. like, half of the people that, that went to my church, half of their parents taught at Beasley. Yeah. And my mom taught there, too. So, yeah. I mean, I went to private school. Did you go also? Um, no, I don't. I didn't. Oh. Yeah. You weren't part of the, no, it's the reason I, Well, here's the deal. The reason I could go there is because my mom taught there. You know, and they did they did favor their teachers here going there. So obviously, yes, it was, they did. Yeah, so. I made up half of that shit. By the way, I really don't hate those. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. So the it, thing you just said is true. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with. I mean, I went to private schools and private colleges, and you know, I, I had a public school experience at Jackson and State. It shows. And keep on, Derek. Um, and so I don't have a problem. You know, I'm all for public schools, though. You know, if that's what you, if I don't just advocate into sending your kids to private schools, even though I'm a product of a private school, I still don't believe in this woman who's been put in place of these school systems and this school and education system in general, who is who she is and is going to deconstruct these programs because then what are you going to have? I mean, we're, we're already looking at 85% of Americans can't scratch three out their own ass already. You know, if you make this situation any worse, we, we will be a third world country. We will be the ones trying to escape, trying to get to Mexico. It won't be the other way around, you know, at the rate we're going. Um, but unfortunately, and there is no rhyme or reason for this. I think you should always have options. Options is what makes you competitive. Options is what makes you better. You have X, Y, and there are people, Malcolm, that will relocate for the purpose of a better school system or not relocate. I know plenty of people, I, I have classmates and friends and coworkers who live in the school system, live where they do, even though they could live somewhere else, but the somewhere else will put their children in a different school system and they don't want their children in that other school system. Absolutely true. So people do, families do tend to look at, when they look at relocating or not relocating, they do look at the school system as a major issue. 
So rating and, and the great the rating and the grading of those schools is a thing. And public school systems give people a rational, viable option. I mean, most people. Most people we meet on an everyday basis are not products of private schools. They're products of public schools. So the public schools are not failing across the nation. There are failing public schools, but all failing schools, all public schools are not failing, and our private schools are not greatly successful. Right. That's true. Um, yeah. One of the things I was going to say about it is I absolutely agree with you on the, the school choice thing. Like when you're buying a house, like I said, it greatly influences the prices of houses. Because it's a great point of uh, contention for families they're mm -hmm. buying a house where they're going to send their kids to school no doubt i think where the analogy cuts off is when you want to switch schools so let's say you move like you publicize that this school is a failing school and you're living in that school um a lot of times the reactions to moving away from a school is very obvious to the performance of that school so if you are given the option to move right away i think a lot of people would like if they had the financial independence to actually up and move when a school is beginning to fail. Yeah, I think a lot of people would, but they don't. Typically, people don't move away from school, but they will or they I said it's true that people will move and gravitate toward good school systems, but they typically don't move away from the bad ones. Typically. What they'll do is they'll put their kids on the school bus in another area so that they'll catch the bus going to another school and they'll just pick the child up and he's, he's becomes a car rider versus riding the bus. We yeah. got a few comments. Um, they can afford it. Go ahead. Also, we have a few comments. Um, I'm going to, Lonnie has been commenting, um, but I'm not going to. Anyway, another beeswax says, I got to say, it with the new education administration, do you really want those people to have the only access to your kids? Charter schools may be the best choice we have to get them education. Well, John Reddick says, half from Cali. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> but now I say the thing about charter schools is that there are good examples of good charter schools. Like, this is true. Of course. But the, yeah, but the fact that there is no regulation, it absolutely reduces the incentives to perform at a, a level when you're also profiting from it, you know, that you're receiving public funds and you're not being held accountable for the education you get. And that's like the other thing about, you know, using a school as a analogy to commerce or, or to uh, capitalism, that the product that you put out isn't like a widget or an iPhone or something that you can just inspect and see if it's deficient. It takes a long time to figure out, hey, I'm in eighth grade and I never learned how to read. <laughs> like it takes a while before you get to the fact that the product that you're manufacturing is defective, you know? So reaction times are slower as well. So you need that sort of oversight with tech marks and, you know, people who come in and make sure that everything is up to, you know, code and standard because the results take time to re reveal themselves. So that's the real problem with that. Without having oversight, you have to, you know, have the data, have the thing in place. Because once you figure out the product's defective, it's too late. It's fucking too late. It's like, oh, well, I never learned how to read. Well, fuck that. <laughs> you know, like you can't just all of a sudden, you know, fix that. So anyway, um, I do want to switch though. I'm going to do a quick news update since it's after four. We're going to be ending soon. Let's just see if there's anything here we want to talk about. 
Republican Senator Tom Cotton of the Select Committee on Intelligence says lawmakers will conduct a bipartisan inquiry into everything Russia may have tried to do during last year's U.S. elections. And if criminal allegations arise, he says J Attorney General Jeff Sessions can decide how to proceed. But another GOP lawmaker is calling for a special prosecutor to investigate the allegations, as Scott Schaefer of member station KQED reports. Speaking at the Republican State Convention in Sacramento, San Diego Congressman Daryl Issa called Russian President Vladimir Putin evil and said an independent prosecutor, rather than Attorney General Jeff Sessions, would help get to the bottom of efforts to interfere with the nation's democratic process. What we need is a continued investigation, both foreign and domestic, as to the Russians' activities. So there's no question at all that we, we lose nothing by investigating thoroughly their activities. Congressman Issa was a harsh and consistent critic of President Obama when he chaired the House Oversight Committee. Issa narrowly won re-election in November, and he's being targeted again by the Democratic Party next year. For NPR News, I'm Scott Schaefer in Sacramento. President Trump welcomed the Democratic National Committee's election of Tom Perez as its chair, tweeting, he couldn't be happier for the Republican Party. Perez, a former labor secretary and more establishment Democrat, beat out the more progressive Democratic Congressman Keith Ellison and then immediately appointed Ellison to be DNC deputy chair. And Perez says they're united. Deputy Chair Ellison and I, we were there together. We were united. And our unity is our greatest strength. And frankly, our unity is Donald Trump's greatest nightmare. Perez also tells NBC's Meet the Press, Democrats have to change their message from not Donald Trump to what they can offer. The retrial of former Los Angeles County Sheriff Lee Baca begins in earnest tomorrow. A deadlocked jury ended in a mistrial in December. As Daniel Carson reports, Baca is accused of conspiring to stonewall a federal investigation into allegations that his deputies were brutalizing prisoners. Prosecutors playing Buck shrugged off years of complaints about excessive force used against inmates in jails the sheriff's department oversees. The defense maintains Baca didn't know about the abuses. It wanted to present expert testimony about Baca's Alzheimer's diagnosis, but the judge ruled it would be, quote, a waste of time. The minute you let that count in, you allow in a lot of sympathetic evidence around Lee Baca's Alzheimer's condition. The defense contends Baca's former second-in-command under Sheriff Paul Tanaka led the conspiracy to derail the federal inquiry. He's serving five years in federal prison. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Carson in Los Angeles. This is NPR. Okay, so that was, uh, I guess, from this past hour to just do a summary of some of the more latest news items. So we didn't talk about the, um, I guess the first thing was the independent investigator that uh, was it Daryl Issa is calling for, even though it's funny that maybe the first Republican to actually do that. So that's possible in some way, but they're much more focused on Russia than on Donald Trump's connections to Russia. But they said it's an independent prosecutor. They're going to look into everything. So hopefully that'll happen. I guess the second one was about the uh, DNC chair, um, it was up against, who was it, uh, Keith Ellison and I can't remember, the guy who won. <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of people just saw the separation between these two candidates as Ellison was being supported by Bernie Sanders and I think it's Perez, Tom Perez, who won, who was being supported by more of the, of the establishment. And he's been making, you know, very strong efforts to try to show some unity. And I, 
you know, I think that's just absolutely necessary if we're going to um, see positive results in the next election, that we can unify the party and, you know, actually start listening to the progressive wing of the party. So, I mean, it is, you know, trying to show a sign of unity that uh, when Ellison lost, he was, you know, brought on as deputy chair. And I guess the last story um, which was concerning, oh, God, I already forgot. <laughs> the last story. Uh, this is why I said very earlier in the show you should write them down because you talk to a lot of them and we never actually get back to them. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'll be doing that. It's a long weekend, but anyway. I think or we can just do one at a time. Yeah, yeah, I can pause it between. That's true. Um, I think the last story I was dealing with this uh, case in California. Uh, I'm not too familiar with it, but it had to do with a federal investigation that was being prevented by uh, the sheriff's department there. Uh, basically abuse and uh, neglect that was happening in the prison system there, or the jails the county oversaw, and that they attempted to uh, impede that investigation. His deputy um, already received five years federal prison. Now the, the actual sheriff is up for trial, which starts tomorrow. Uh, but those are the three. Um, any thoughts on any of those stories? <sighs> I mean, I think, oh, shit. Okay, so I do think they ought to get an independent investigator, but I don't think it's going to happen. I think at the end of the day, they know some shit ain't right. I really do. I think, and this is just me being conspiracy theory theorist, but I think they know what really happened, and I think they know exactly how much Russia's played a part in all of this. But honestly and truthfully, again, like I said before, you can't tell everybody. You can't just dispel it and just deal with it because... What will that mean? That will mean that President Trump is, the, is an illegitimate president, as Maxine Waters so eloquently put it. She's an Ill, he's an illegitimate president over the biggest, one of the biggest democracies in the world. And what do we do after that? How would you, how would we handle that? Well, we have to go to war with Russia and we had to figure out who's gonna be our leadership. And those are two very massive problems. Yeah. Yes. So we really can't get to the bottom of this without a really serious problem at the end. Of that point. Yeah. Uh, Xavier, to your point, um, it was reported that two of the main senators that are in charge of running um, this investigation were calling the press last week in order to tell them that there was no story here give this up and look away <laughs> the two people in charge of running this investigation so you're absolutely right this does have to be independent if we're going it has to be one of those independent 9-11 commissions that you know if if you're ever going to get any actual answers and, but the truth of the matter is you're absolutely right. That would then throw us into a whole state of confusion. Mm -hmm. You know, because that does not mean that Hillary automatically becomes president. She as a lot of people are wishing and hoping for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you gotta get the Republicans to even sign off on the investigator. They only have one Republican. He happens to be the head of the ethics committee, but he has to get the votes of the majority of it, because obviously all the Democrats are going to vote for it. And I believe like every committee is um, 
is divided by two, basically, which is represent the uh, the makeup of the Senate. So, you know, there are two more Republicans on every committee than there are Democrats. So they have to get at least uh, two other Republicans to sign on. Get the independent prosecutor. And let's just face it, the Republicans peeling them off is hard. <laughs> like, really um, they, they typically are just pro-Republican all the time, even when it's clearly a problem. Yeah. I mean, if you sit there and you, you thought about this worst case scenario, let's say that they get this independent person, right? And yeah. they come in and they find out a whole lot of shit went wrong and they have to figure out what to do next. And they find out, you know, Trump stole the presidency through the Russian government. OK. Yeah. Trump has put people in place in the government already. you got to question all of those decisions. You've got to figure out, well, when we remove him, does that mean Pence becomes vice president or not? There is no contingency for if we find out the worst of the worst comes comes to terms. There is no contingency for that. Yeah, that's the thing. I think the um, the investigation would have to, you know, offer some sort of, you know, try to pass together something real quick, you know, because you're right. Like, there is nothing. This is completely unprecedented. You know, so yeah, that's another reason you need an in- independent investigation because you, once you figure this out, you got to find a solution too. And that's obviously if they can't even get the investigation done, how are you going to offer something if you actually find something wrong? You know, that's enough reason right there to have it be independent. <laughs> like, what if this is true? That's the whole point of an investigation, is to find out what happened. And I believe. This is another more sort of conflict of interest because I believe it is true that whenever you say someone that's under investigation, a certain cloud of guilt obviously hangs over your head. These are the Clintons, right? You know, the investigation showed up nothing, but just the fact that she was under investigation was enough for her to turn the tide. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the Republicans are against the investigation because they want their president to get all the Republican shit passed, right? And obviously any investigation into this will have a cloud of guilt over them. But we don't give a fuck about that. As a country, we shouldn't. <laughs> we should care about what actually happened and have a, a group that can come to a conclusion about it. But we do have people that care about this, which goes back to the whole, you know, snitching. Yeah, that's true. Um, which, ironically enough, I was just reading an article that came out in the New Yorker today, and it just ran across my feed. Um, Sean Spicer apparently White uh, House staffers into a meeting and hand over their phones. Yeah. Um, what their that phones and their digital equipment. This happened last week. And all of their phones were gone through to make sure that they were not snitching. Yeah. And they didn't have any snitching apps on their phone. But as the meeting was over, somebody went out and snitched. Of course. They told them right about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, thank God for consciousness. I mean, for people who have a conscience, because I think that's what we're seeing. It's just like, they're on board. They're on the team, but at the same time, this team shit is just so bad. You're like, fuck, you know, <laughs> I gotta say something about this. 
but yeah, I just it's crazy. It's crazy. And um, yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you, uh, Xavier, about the last one. I don't know if you heard about the trial of the sheriff in L.A. I know I've heard it going through the news. It'll probably be up, you know, since it's making national news and the trial is probably going to be televised and all that next week. Um, have you heard anything about it? And what's, what was your initial reaction to that story? So I remember when it first got started, because I remember hearing about the deputy getting some years. And so, yeah. you know, now they've circled around to the sheriff. And I like I haven't heard a whole, whole lot about it. Just like that brief part. I know they're bringing in his Alzheimer's, which is not it's, it's a it's a it's a ploy for his attorneys to distract and say some things. But I don't think prosecution is going to let it work out because the prosecution is going to say that. If that's the case, then he should never been the sheriff to begin with. And so then that presents a whole other group of problems. Yeah, I think they said in the story that the judge rejected it. So. Right. It's, it's, it's not relevant because that's a current problem he has. It had nothing to do with his decision making or what he knew was going on at that jail prior to and allowing these things to go on. Um, and then I think this came out at the same time. Um, I want to say Delaware or somewhere up there had a prison that had gotten taken over, had a building taken over by a set of inmates and a guard ended up getting killed in the process. And one of the things they were calling for was better treatment, um, that they had issues with the current presidency and they knew it was going to spell bad things for them. And so what's happening, there are organizations that do exist that govern these jails and these prisons. Um, and it's the ACA, American uh, Correctional Association. And they go in and they certify these places and they look at these places. Here in Atlanta, we just had a case with a sheriff uh, at the sheriff department where an inmate was brutally beat up by a guard and it was all over camera. And they ended up charging that man and, pro- and they're going to prosecute him. So I think with situations like that, you, you got to take them with a grain of salt and you got to look at the case for what the case is. And you got to see it all the way through. Um, and keeping in mind, you know, that that's those individuals, that there are other people who wouldn't do anything like that. Um, and it's a good thing that they are prosecuting him and going through this because that's going to help set precedents for other cases of police and corrections brutality. Um, but at the same time, it's also going to set, well, what's appropriate amount of force? Because that was part of the issues with this case is that there were times where they had use of force and it might have been warranted. But then what's the what's an appropriate amount of use of force? And that's going to all that kind of stuff is going to get argued and teased out. So that's a good thing. It's going to come out of that case. Yeah. But do I think he should go to prison? Yes, I do. I think some people died in their custody yeah. and all kind of craziness. Yeah, no, I, no doubt. And I think the fact that you mentioned the case uh, in Delaware and I'm sure it's representative of things that are happening around the country, which is why this case is probably going to get so much attention is that um, it's an issue everywhere. You know? And that this case just happens to be so egregious and, you know, well documented that not only did they engage in these sorts of things, but actively tried to thwart federal investigators. Right. You know, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'll I'll be following that, and you know that that will be the case. And I guess the last story that uh, was in this bunch was about the DNC chair. Um, you know, did anyone see any of the? I guess there was a debate that happened. Mark hit me up about it. Did you get it? Yeah. I watched the debate. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I guess because it wasn't like, and I feel bad saying this on this panel right now, but I watched the debate, but was too engrossed in what was going on on my phone 
than I was in the actual debate. However, I did catch snippets of some things, like they were saying that his um, what's the guy's name? Tom what? Perez, I believe. Tom, well, he's the guy his running mate, not his running mate, but his running opponent it was Darnell or Dar- Darrell Keith or something like that. I forgot the guy's name. Some black guy. Yeah. They said that he said um, they got on him about saying some anti-Semitic, some some semantic. Yeah, and, it? yeah. I think it's that you know, um, yeah, Keith Ellison was the first Muslim appointed to Congress or elected to Congress, I'm sorry. And uh, yeah. so I mean, it was kind of like a little thing that um, probably came up. Yeah, yeah, but they know it wasn't little. They stayed on it. They kept saying like he said, "I never said that." You know, if you just play the tape, then you know you would see that I didn't say that. And then the one, then uh, I forget Dana Dana Bash, what her name is, was like, "Well, I have the transcript here, and you say, and I quote, and she sat there read the transcript." I'm like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like, you know, because I'm like, you get killed, and but everybody else wasn't making anything better. But it was this other black guy up there who was, he, I forget where he was from, but he was a, I think a, D, a, a Democratic leader of somewhere, I think Ohio, somewhere up north. It might be wrong, but he was, he has some good points, and Tom has some good points, and then they brought up the whole, you know, um, hacking thing. Like, did y'all, like, what did y'all do about the whole Bernie Sanders? You know, thing and how do you feel about that? They argued about that, and then one the one black woman on the panel was like, you know, we keep going back to that. We need to be focused on what the hell's going on, you no, know, going forward because we keep going back to that. That's the past. It's happened, you know, and that has nothing to do with what's going to happen moving forward because we got to focus on two twenty twenty. You know what I'm saying? And so we're not going to remember the twenty twenty, but she said twenty eighteen. Excuse me, and twenty twenty. Excuse me. So yeah, yeah. but. Okay. One of the things we got to talk about is basically the DNC chair. Their primary responsibility is to raise money. Um, and I know we always think about like this, their leadership, and it is true that they, in some ways, shape the messages. But those are those messages are shaped by how much money they give to candidates running. So yep. they are, and oftentimes selecting winners and losers. And what happened in this past election was one side of the um, the election was hacked by Russia and leaked to WikiLeaks. And all these things came out about the previous, uh, who was it? Washman Schultz, I think was her name. Debbie Washman Schultz. Washman Schultz, yeah. Schultz. Yeah. yeah. So I think she was a congresswoman from Florida. She, I guess she still is, actually. But either way, uh, she was let go or resigned. And Dana Brazil uh, took back over. So she's the acting chair. I guess she's no longer since this election. But either way, um, I think it is a kind of relevant thing because it it threw the Democrats into disarray. And I mean, going forward, I mean, this shit could happen again. We got to know like how to... Which is why I think that the conversation should be had. I mean, I, I agree that happened in the past, but what's to stop that from happening again if you don't address it? Exactly. You know, because it never really got addressed. It got thrown out there, but with so many other things going on, it kind of, you know, we addressed it. We we went on. There was there was never a conclusion about. See, you don't get to decide, or you don't get to play favors in who the nominee is going to be. Yeah, I I agree. I guess my whole thing. Well, I agree what you're saying, Derek. And I guess what I was looking at is that 
we need a strong overhaul. Like I agree with everybody how y'all, everybody on the panel said we need a strong overhaul of the DNC. You know what I'm saying? With new leaderships and stuff, with new leaders and new agendas, and just you know live up to the promises that you make to everybody during every election cycle. Like I think it was you, Derek, or was you Xavier who said that don't come, don't show up that when it's time great. for election. You know, just don't show up when it's time for election. You know what I'm saying? Show up 24 seven. And um, but I guess for my thing with this with that particular statement, why I agree with her on it is that you know, at that particular point in time, I didn't see what they could have said at that particular point in time of the debate. The conversation needed to be had, but I didn't think it needed to be said at that particular point in time of the b- debate. Yeah, because I feel like it was like y'all always tell y'all already tell me got thirty seconds, a minute to thirty seconds to sixty seconds to speak. And I just thought that was just a waste of time, my personal opinion. So, okay. but, yeah. but I agree with you. We need to talk about it because that's one of the things that we need to do to fix shit because everybody was on the same page. And man, look where we're at right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got two more stories I want to do before we, we go. Um, but I want to remind everyone about the check it out. Or if you have any additional stories, hopefully something uplifting in our check it out segment because we, we talk about so many negative things. Although I always enjoy our conversation. So, I mean, I just want to make sure we end on a, a lighter note. Um, but this one is going to be uh, about adulting school. And I'm just going to play this because I also want to get a cup of coffee and uh, enjoying. It's basically just saying people who are moving, transitioning from childhood to adulthood may have oh. not taught enough skills to manage their day-to-day lives. And I, I just want to talk about it a little bit and then uh, move on to something else. All right. I'll be right back. You ever wish there was someone to offer advice on how to be an adult, like, say, how to fold laundry? We bring you Adulting School. Here's Maine Public Radio's Patty White. A couple dozen young adults are sipping drinks at a Portland restaurant, hoping to uncover their true financial style. So you got an idea of who you are? Yeah. Why don't you get up? They mix into different groups based on their money habits. 29-year-old Carly Bouchard sits with others who may share her pain. Um, I'm a financial cripple. Even though she went to business school, Bouchard says she now needs the adulting school. I'm still adult. Not an adult, adult when it comes to my finances. The adulting school offers private social media groups and live events like this one at local bars and restaurants. Attendees can learn grown-up skills from how to network like a pro to how to fold a fitted sheet. After watching a demonstration on proper folding, 25-year-old Adrian Abramowitz grabs a sheet as her friend 26-year-old Emily Rice coaches. So you have the two fingers. Put them together and you pinch it. But it's not going well. Then you grab it by these two. Wait, shouldn't there be like, this is where I was lost. Brian! (laughs) The vibe of the adulting school is fun, but the goal behind it is serious. Co-founder Rachel Weinstein got the idea from her work as a psychotherapist. She noticed that a lot of her clients struggled with the transition to adulthood. You know, when you see 10 people feeling like they're the only one, they're all struggling with the same thing. You think, let's get these people together so they can learn this stuff and not feel so isolated and ashamed. Money management is a common source of stress for the school's attendees, who tend to be millennials and women. 32-year-old Lindsay Roscala says she's trying to figure out how to save for the future and pay off school debt. In job interviews, you know, they're ask, always asking, like, where do you see yourself in five years? And I never know how to answer that because I'm always thinking on, like, how to, like, survive today and next week and what's coming up. 
Holly Swires says this hand-wringing about adulthood goes back generations. She's an associate professor of anthropology at Lake Forest College who's researched adulthood. Part of the problem, Swire says, is that classes that teach life skills like home ec are no longer emphasized, and there's no other dedicated place to learn these things. When you graduate from high school or from college and suddenly there's no more rules about if you just do this step, that's what comes next. Though this may be an age-old problem, some people criticize the adulting school for coddling. But Swire says the school deserves kudos for addressing a real problem. She'd like to see more proactive approaches that help all young adults successfully navigate from dependence to independence. For NPR News, I'm Patty White. So what, what were your thoughts about that? This it's, it's fucking funny that you brought this topic up because I was at an in-service this week for my job. And they had something called Life 101. Did we offer Life 101 classes for high school students that need to learn the rules of a, like, like, the, like, like adulting? I'm, still saying, I'm like, what? Then they passed out a sheet of what they offer. And so I was like, Okay, I'm thinking like like the thing said, you know, home ec and whatnot. But then I realized that when I was at home ec, they really didn't teach you too much of any goddamn thing. They just told you how to bounce a checkbook, um, sew buttons onto a damn piece of whatever, and cook. That was it. And the funny thing about home ec was she gave you the answers. She would read over the book and she would give you the answers to the fucking like you know where do you put your um how do you bounce a checkbook and then we she passed the sheet of paper she said you see this right here you bounce it right here and i looked at my cousin like am i in the right class because i mean shit let me and i looked around at my classmates i'm like oh up across myself i said all oh, these other dumb motherfuckers so i was like <laughs> because i was like i wasn't used to this shit and so but yeah, life one on one adulting is a thing. Like they have budgeting money and um, budgeting and money, credit versus debit. How to use each wisely? Uh, where do I do that at? You know, where do you go to turn my utilities, laundry? How to read labels? How to sort laundry? Basic car care, organization, and basic cooking. And I was like, I mean, some of this shit I learned like from age ten on up. And not knocking those, but people who usually don't know how to do shit like that, it's not, I don't blame the child, I blame the parent. And because I've seen so many parents come in and doing their kids' homework, applying for colleges for their kids, and doing their financial aid. And when the child does go to college and he fucks up, you know, with his grades and whatnot, they'll come back telling us, we need one of y'all to write and uh, um an appeal letter for my son because he 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 just don't know what he's doing. Well, and maybe not. Maybe he don't need to be in school, and maybe you need to stop coddling him. So, but yeah, like if those are skills you never taught, like I don't know how you're supposed to learn them. And I guess they have to, that these are necessary that people show up. So. I'm sick of this shit already. Go ahead, go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> Ooh, I can't do it. I'm sick of this shit already. I really am. I'm starting to think we need to be back in Animal Kingdom Survival of the Fittest. <laughs> Them dumb motherfuckers need to be euthanized if you can't do these things. And obviously they parents too because they were not successful. It's awesome. This reminds me of this book I read when I was real young called The Giver. Some people just don't need to be in society. They just don't. <laughs> 
And if we got to come up with a whole goddamn school to teach your dumb ass how to cook a piece of toast and fold the corners <laughs> of a damn fitted sheet, you do not need to be here. You are not productive. You are going to be a burden on society. You are a mole on the ass of society. And you need to be taken care of. I just cannot do this anymore. I really cannot. I can't handle this. Because I've run into those clients who can't do shit. All they can do is eat, sleep, and shit. That's all they can do. Now, they can tell you the lyrics of every song that Jay-Z has ever put out because he is a prolific poet and he is a hellified writer. They can tell you those things. But they cannot tell you what two plus two is and that you don't just put the card in the ATM machine until you put the money in there first. That is the problem with society. That is why we have gotten to this place where we are. Because the majority of us need some shit like the damn adulting school. Mm-hmm. You better preach. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to say this. I just died on the floor. <laughs> I'm not going to get as deep into Xavier did because I agree with you to a point. To a point <laughs> that some of those things. Um, like knowing how to work an ATM and stuff like that, yeah, because that's just literally everyday stuff. Yeah, <laughs> there are people out here, and you know, you you don't blame. It's hard to blame them because their parents didn't teach them. Parents did not teach them how to clean a house. Their parents did not teach them how to cook. I teach them how to pay bills and how to um, how to balance a checkbook. Yeah, you know all of those things that you're supposed to be taught by your parents as a kid. The parents didn't do that. I remember there's such things as adaptive skills. There, there's a thing such as adaptive skills. If you learn how to do other things, if you can do other things, but those things things don't come into play until until later. Do I know how to balance a checkbook? Yes, I do. Did I have to teach? Did I have to teach myself how to balance a checkbook? How to make a budget and all of that? Yeah, I had to teach myself that. But I had to teach myself that when I was in the thick of it. I think that my whole my mother, oh no, wait, my mother, God bless her, decided one day to teach me about budgeting money. And her way of doing that was after she cashed her check to show me where all of the money went. But she didn't want me to know how much money she made. So she did this whole thing where she flashed, she showed me this this water bill, and then she flashed them. This amount goes here, this amount goes here. This amount goes here, and this is what I'm left with. <laughs> and that was our budget class. That taught me absolutely fucking nothing. <laughs> when I got out there on my own, paying rent and all that shit, I had to teach myself how to budget. Yeah, That's something that I had to teach myself. And that whole adulting class that you are downing could have come in handy. Because I could have saved myself a whole lot of trouble. That adulting class, however, is being promoted to people who can and are able to teach their kids how to do stuff because the, when I'm thinking like like for instance like I'm not saying like you didn't have it but she did your mom did the best she could and my eye from what you just told me but if you got somebody coming in and their kids are like they I mean I'm gonna put it out there white middle class um the wife take care of everything the nuclear family is what I want to say if you gotta mm-hmm. teach these kids how to fucking budget and shit like that then we have a problem 
because of the simple fact that they should not do that. I had people coming into the calling it to the door. Somebody has to teach them too. Yeah, but I'm talking about, but the thing of the matter is, like, if you call in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning to for me to write a list of stuff for your son, like, I need my, I had to, I had to come to Knoxville so my son um, can have his toilet fixed because he doesn't know how to fill out one of the pieces of paper to get his toilet fixed. All he got to do is sit there and ask one of us how to do that. That's why our job is come to the front desk and say what I need to fill out. Worry about this, this, and this. She called all the way from Memphis to Knoxville to ask me where does he where where are the local um where are the local um um what do they call them cleaners? Where's the local laundry cleaners at? Where's the local this and stuff at? Like where do you go do this? Where do you go do that at? I'm like, ma'am, um, I can give you the numbers all that stuff, but it's three o'clock in the morning and they're not gonna be open. Well, I want to call them first thing in the morning, but I'm like, well, shit, if you up at three o'clock in the morning, I doubt your ass gonna be the damn wake up call. Because you sitting there worried about trying to get things budgeted and everything. But it's like when you get and then you have parents come in and complain about homework that the kids gotta do. They complain about their children have to do all this extra shit. Yeah, but like, see, these aren't life skills. I mean, I hear I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you, but these aren't life skills. Those are those, those are those over those are those smotherers. Um there's yeah. a term that RuPaul and Michelle Lafont use for those parents that overparent, you know, where you're right. You're you're you are. Then, then we're getting into that realm that Xavier was talking about. Well, you sending motherfuckers out here in the world who are gonna need, you know, to everybody gonna have to come and put a bib on them and feed them because they are not gonna be productive. I'm talking about some basic things that may have gotten past that you may, you know may use those adulting classes for, like folding a fitted sheet. You know, if nobody in your house taught you how to do laundry, if there was somebody doing the laundry all the time, you know, I again, I grew up with my grandmother and great-grandmother who loved to do everything for me up to a point where my grandmother decided I should know how to do all these things without ever teaching me. And I, the things that I learned, I learned because I knew I needed to learn them. And that's why I and that's why I think you differentiate from a lot of the people that I come across. But everything you said is true. You sat there and yourself and said, "I need to learn this so I can get by." There are kids who sit there and they just don't care. They don't want to learn anything. You try to teach them something, they sit there and try to argue you down. Well, I ain't got to do this. My mama gonna do it. You know, so you know, just like so. You so when she offered these classes this past week, I'm like, who are you offering these classes to? Are you offering to those, like you said, the people that Derek is talking about? Are you offering to those type of people who just like their parents just don't have the time to teach them stuff like that? And then, or you offer to people who, where it's just like, you should know how to do this shit because your mom does all this stuff. And, you know, because it uh, but all boils down to me. But for me, it all boils down to whether the child wants to learn these skills or not. There you and go. That's what all boils down to. It's because, an individual yeah. problem because I hate to say it, Derek, but sometimes you just got to go through something to get somewhere else. A diamond isn't just made, it is formed. That means that it has to go through time, pressure, and a whole lot of heat for many years to become a diamond from a piece of coal. And that is why this country is a country full of a bunch of whiny ass pussies who spend all of their time bitching about what they didn't have, what wasn't like some things for them. And then they end up in a place where, okay, you need to put together some goddamn life skills and figure your way through this shit. So your only demand, your only way of getting through something is, oh, I'm gonna break up in this person's house because I played that on Grand Theft Auto and I can take and sell their stuff and then I can get what I need to do whatever. And I feel completely identified because this is what I need. No, 
sometimes you just got to sit down and you've got to figure shit out for yourself. Um, humans have the biggest fucking brain in the fucking world. Do you not get that? We are the one of the few mammals that can think ahead of time. There are not very many animals that can do that. So if we can figure out, if a human can figure out how to build an airplane who's never flown, a, who's never flown before, I think we should be able to, just by sitting there looking at it long enough, conceptualize how to figure out how to fit, how to fold a fitted sheet, or maybe I don't know. There's all this goddamn. Uh, you, you talk to your friends about everything else. Talk to them about that. I'm just not going to hear an excuse that we need some bullshit like the adulting school because again, nine times out of ten, the people who are going to be using the adulting school who be going to this especially from the one I just listened to, these are people who probably have gotten through some other things, maybe gotten through school, probably an accounting major or some shit, and it's probably supervising somebody else. And you need to tell me out of the two of you, you're truly the dumbest fuck in the room because you can't do basic life goddamn thing. You can't boil the water without burning the damn stove up. So, yeah, you're a problem. You are a problem because you're a liability. That's why you're a problem. No excuse for that bullshit because there's a lot of things I that a lot of us weren't taught growing I up. I think you are. I think you are correct to certain degrees. I don't think it is an all-encompassing, all-blanket type of situation. Yeah. Again, we're all populated for a reason, and I think and I, and I have no, and I have no, and I recognize that sometimes people need to go through things to figure out the other end. I get that. Yeah. No doubt. But I still think that when it's gotten less and less every generation, why is we're it? sit out here in this world? That's a whole. That's a whole different conversation. It's not. It's the part uh, of this conversation. It's because we keep allowing this. We can need I finish to, my statement. I, I want you to think about. I'm as as religious as I am. I'm surprised I haven't figured out this is an no. evolutionary conversation. And it's because we have allowed ourselves to do this, because we've allowed these things to slip down from generation to generation instead of stopping this shit. Yeah. I did I did have a point. I, Derek, did you get the chance to finish your point? Or? No, that's okay. He ran over me. I'm going to let it go. <laughs> but I, I did want to say, like, I, I, I wanted to do two more stories before the end of this. I had no idea this was going to be such a discussion topic. I just thought it was cute. <laughs> but you brought, you brought up a really good point, Xavier. One one thing that came up as you were making your comments is that this class was started by a psychotherapist, right? That when she talked to her clients, she saw that all these people had these issues. And so they, you know, instituted these uh, classes because they saw a need, you know, and I, I totally get where you're coming from as to why this need exists and how we got here is really fucked up. But clearly the need exists because people are showing up. And then... Mark brings in the fact that his library is offering similar classes. I did not expect that at all, but uh, a really lively discussion. First of all, I'm, I'm glad that uh, you brought that up, and uh, I'm laughing the whole time because you, you're right, but at the same time, I, I would have taken some of these classes. I would have. <laughs> That's why I laugh. When I think about it, like folding, I'm just getting to the point where I can manage my house right. You know, when I, I, I work it out myself, don't get me wrong. Some maybe some people may not get there, you know, um, and so I, I I get where they they come from, but I 
totally agree with what, uh, your assessment of it, like how we got here. It's pretty fucked up. Um, but I do want to end on a positive note. I think I'm going to change this segment from uh, check it out to uh, tell me something good, something like that, because that's really what I want. I want you to tell me something good because all this shit is coming at me. I need like a fresh napkin, you know, like to wipe it all off. Um, I had a couple. Uh, one was going to deal with the uh, How to Get Away with Murder finale. I'm not going to spoil. You haven't seen it, but I just thought it was excellent. Excellent episode. If you haven't seen it, uh, you should. I watched it with someone who didn't watch the show. They had no idea what was going on, and they loved it. <laughs> it's like, I've never seen it, but the acting is so good, and they're so like intense, and it was fucking great. Um, another one had to do with my nerdy self and planets. I don't know if you read about this exo, this uh, solar system. Seven, seven planets that found this yes. that can support life. Yes. Um, it's kind of crazy. As someone had, uh, the thing I loved about it was people's imagination saying, like, if you were standing at one of, you know, like if you were standing on an Earth like planet, what the sky would look like. Like, that was the, the thing that really killed me. So imagine standing on a planet where the sun is about 10 times the size it is where we are, but it, it glows much more dim. So it's this huge fucking sun. And instead of having moons, there are sister planets that you can see in the sky which are about the same size or even bigger than the moon. And you could actually see the continents, <laughs> the things like from fucking sitting down like without a telescope at all. Like you can just literally see other worlds in your solar system that are always moving because I think these things rotate the sun you know, like two or three days to rotate it all the way around this small solar system because it's a dwarf star. Star, Yeah, isn't that kind of crazy? <laughs> like, that's fucking insane. Um, and they say they can support life, but they've only seen it with certain telescopes so far, so they got to get much more powerful telescopes to get, like, mass density. Well, they, they have basic things from the wobble of the stars, how, how big they are and all that. But more intense scrutiny is necessary to figure out the chemical content, if it has an atmosphere or not. And of course, all this is somewhat mute because it would take us about a million years to get there. But it's just a cool idea like that it exists uh, and that we're finding stuff like that. Uh, so that brought me joy. Imagine standing on a world like that where there yes, basically six moons. It, it very much resembles the size of Jupiter, for instance. Jupiter and its moons are somewhat like a, its own little solar system. Like Jupiter could have been a star, you know, the way that it is constructed and, you know, it could have been. So it's very similar to just like a little Jupiter that is a sun instead of a planet and has all these little moons going around it that could possibly harbor life, which is just kind of awesome. So that was my joy thing. I don't know if anyone else had something to enjoy this week. What you what you talking about the what they call the trap it the trap what they call it? Um, it, it has a name. Yeah, the solar system does. Okay. Because uh, that that was awesome. Um, yeah, that was awesome. Um, who what the fuck are they talking about? Um, so um, basically, um, my are you are we doing like favorites and stuff this week? Yeah. I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but Tuesday. I make it in my point to drive to Jackson to watch Get Out because somebody's going to spoil it between now and Tuesday. I just feel it. 
it's like people are itching to talk about it. I had yeah. five people ask me, Mark, have you seen it yet? They saw it last Monday at a preview screening in uh, up north somewhere. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to have to go see. I'm not going to plan to go see the movie regardless, though, but stuff happened. But uh, I'm going to go see it Tuesday. So if anybody's watching this and they want to come ask me about it, don't. Wait till Tuesday <laughs> or Wednesday morning. Um, other than that, um, I have discovered a new podcast called Girls Will Be Ghouls. It's two black girls who are, who are proud of their blackness talking about horror movies, and I'm getting my life each episode. So uh, y'all need to check them out. Um, and I'm reading Shade, finally. And I've read two short stories so far. Derek, have you read this yet? Years ago. Yes. Years okay. Ago. I want to talk about Shade when I get a chance. I might do a special M3 Entertainment um, a show about it because the first story right off the bat is called Spice. And yeah, I said it is like each ep- each story I read, it's like I can see why this book is so empowering. And I wish I had a head of head of my you know collection way back when because it's very good. Every story that comes out this I read so far is like top notch. So Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say on the, the point of get out, I, I I sent you this podcast from NPR, the uh Code Switch podcast where they actually interviewed Jordan Peele about Get Out and just talked about the position of blacks in horror movies. I thought it was an excellent discussion. I'm sure you read before, but some of it was new. They talked about why black people always get killed in horror movies and their analysis of that, which was really good, I have to admit. First time I actually understood it. So, anyway. We talked about that Friday night. So, if you haven't seen, me and Ali talked about that Friday night. So, if you haven't seen our um, latest edition of M3 Entertainment Hangout, Check it out. We talked about that. We also talked on the pending possibility of a writer strike. Yeah, it is growing each day. Oh, really? Yes, and it's like real. Quick. A lot of people don't know about it. See, that's how they got us last time. We just woke up one morning. They're striking. They're striking in Hollywood. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. You know, we got episodes already can. You know, but then the episodes ran out. They were shot, and we were left with a truncated season. In 2007, 2008, and it was like a Sahara desert of good quality television because we had nothing but reality show television. And it was bad. I mean, bad. And so for your wits, if you want if you want some escapism, this is a problem. If you want some escapism from the world of Trump, you turn to your drama, this is a problem. So I'm going to keep monitoring this as it goes down, but they're saying that they, it's, I had to explain it a little bit. Go to the Entertainment Hangout. I tried to explain it the best I could with what I had, which is deadline, and but it was lengthy. So I'm going to try to break it down to lamest terms for Friday's Hangout. Okay. But Derek, I really was hoping you could be there because I wanted to hear what you had to say about it. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. And um, I know, like I said, another point was I think when we recorded the gaming Hangout, um, we were talking about Get Out as well, so I'm pretty sure that uh, Mufasa and Impact are both going to go see it, or they did this weekend. They had made plans to go see it. I, I'm going to probably go see it Tuesday as well. So um, it should be a good time. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, anyone else have uh, something positive? I'm going to uh, promote a um, 
web uh, 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 podcast that I recently discovered that um, actually is kind of sideways, kind of sort of connected to us. It's called Nerds in Luxury. Hmm. You get on iTunes. Um, it's it's uh, it says we podcast and talk shit. What else is there? <laughs> And um, and and the, and the way it sideways is related to us, our occasional contributor Corey Drummond is one of the people on the cast. Mm. Yeah, Corey's great. <laughs> yes, he does a he does a word of the week, which is really really good. Yeah, that's cool. I'll definitely be checking that out. And Xavier, did you have anything this week? Mine is more like a food for thought. Um, I went to this training this past weekend, and one of the keynote speaker was an attorney who does uh, estate planning and end of end of life stuff and all that. And so one of the things he talked about is he's getting this growing demographic of uh, LGBT individuals who, at the times of their death, they don't have anybody to you know, uh, leave things to or to take care of things for them or to make medical decisions for them when they can't make them on their own. And so he encouraged, he said what he's been doing was he's been encouraging some of them because a lot of them are estranged from their families or their friends and family, not friends and family, their friends that they you know, had, especially if they were people who came up in the 70s and 80s during the AIDS epidemic have passed on. Um, and so he, he's encouraged everyone to, you know, no matter how old or young you are, to start preparing yourself in that capacity, especially the LGBT community. And, you know, having somebody there to be your agent, if it gets to that point, let's say I'm in a car accident, who's going to come to the hospital and speak for my wishes? You know, who's going to who's going to do that if I'm estranged from my family? And to think about that and to put these things in place and then don't just do it and not have a discussion with those people, but talk to those people. And, you know, he talked about one of his clients, um, they went to AA together with another person, a neighbor or something. And he and this neighbor didn't really talk to each other until this until they started doing, they agreed to be each other's agent. And it was that I'll do, I'll be your agent if you die before me and you be my agent if I die before you or if I, am, if I fall into this situation before you do. And that's how they, you know, worked it out. And so he thought that was a pretty good idea. And so, you know, I like for all of us kind of think about stuff like that. I know it's kind of dark and it's a little morbid, but, you know, you want your wishes respected even in that capacity. And so this is a way to get that done. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I think we are reluctant to talk about that just because it, it can be down. But I honestly think that it is a, a positive step where we're, we're addressing a problem that we see because i i've actually noticed that myself amongst um you know friends telling me about their friends going through an illness and, and not having anyone there precisely because of what you said and uh we can do something about that you know? we can yeah we can you don't have to be family this person doesn't have to be related to you they could be a friend or anybody just as long as you have documentation that's all they need yeah yeah that's cool and I guess I want to do a shameless plug uh, again for Chris Impact Sutton, who's uh, hosting the M3 Gaming Podcast. Uh, he said he's a little backed up. He's got episodes five and six recorded. They should be out very soon. Uh, Mark is going to be back next week for the M3 Entertainment Hangout. You can also check us out on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, and uh, other podcasters. 
which uh, we're trying to get every, all the back episodes going and so far. So, uh, but check us out, Nail Media Mind, Old Town Files. Pretty awesome. And um, as always, you can inbox us, leave us comments and questions in the QA. I uh, love to appreciate your feedback. And uh, thank you for viewing everyone here. Thank you for being here. Very good discussion today. I appreciate it. And um, we will catch you all next week. Peace. Bye. Thank you for listening to the M3 Bear Essentials podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use. And if you would like to get more content from M3, visit mailmediamind.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and many others. But most importantly, our link to YouTube, where you can subscribe and get a notification when we go live. There, you can participate in the Q&A and be a part of the conversation. Again, my name is Malcolm Travers, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next episode.